Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is the Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN. Now, live inside the Matt Black Kia Studios, here's Mike Gill. Here we go on a Thursday edition of the Sports Bass live on 97.3 ESPN. The 97.3 ESPN free mobile app powered by First Bank of Seattle. I'm your host, Mike Gill. Josh Henning is producing today's show. Phil's in action today. We'll keep you posted on that throughout the day after a, another loss last night where the offense was brr, cold. But the counter is flipped to June. Will the offense heat up? Well, not so far. But they are up 2-1 on the Metropolitans. Max Scherzer gets the start. Taiwan Walker for the Phils. Bryce Harper leads things off, so we'll keep you up to date there. But I do want to start with some Phil stuff that happened in the game today. Because the Phillies went up 2 to nothing in part of what we thought we were going to see a lot this year. And if we could get more of what we saw in the first inning today which is what I thought you would see a lot more of, that will help this offense take a step forward. And what happened in the game is something we haven't seen a whole heck of a lot of. And that's Trey Turner got on base, for God's sakes. You know, Trey Turner signed a huge contract. Some people thought he could be the MVP of this league, the way he was playing in the World Baseball Classic. I just thought he would be a really good piece to the puzzle. And I think Trey Turner should be hitting in the leadoff spot, mind you. I don't like that he hits in the number two spot. But that's another rant for another time. But the way that I saw Trey Turner, who is not hitting leadoff today, he is hitting in the number two spot in the Phillies lineup. And I'll get to that lineup that they threw out there, brought to you by Clark's Moving and Storage. Stott, Turner, Harper, Castellanos, Schwarber, Marsh, Clubin, Sosa, Stubbs. No Real Muto. Real Muto hasn't got a hit since Moses wore short pants. I mean, this guy has been ice cold, JT Real Muto. So he's out of the lineup today. Alec Bohm on the 10-day injured list with a left hamstring strain to fill his spot on the 26-man roster. Some guy named Drew Ellis is playing um, first base now against left-handed pitching. Now, I suggested the other day that the Phillies should have gone out and got Jesus Aguilar, a veteran player, a former All-Star, hit 35 homers a couple of years ago. I'd much rather him getting at-bats in the four uh, games against left-handed pitching than some guy named Drew Ellis, but I digress on that one. Uh, But what I do want to go into today to start things off is what we saw in this game today, right? Trey Turner. Now, he wasn't the leadoff man, per se, but he got on base. I think the important part about Turner, what we thought we were going to get, is that Turner would get on base, steal second base, and kind of with these new rules with the bigger bags that you would see a guy like Trey Turner get on base and steal some bases. Well, 
He got on base today. He was uh, on second base. They do a double steal with him and Harper. Turner's on second. He steals third. Harper's on first. He steals second. The throw goes into left field. Turner gets up. They score. Harper goes to third. Next batter comes up. There's one out. Castellanos hits a long fly ball to center field. Harper tags up. And the Phillies manufacture two runs. This is what the offense was supposed to look like. Trey Turner on base, creating havoc with his speed. And then the guys behind him knocking him home. That hasn't happened enough. It hasn't happened enough. And the Phillies today losing Alec Bohm is not a good sign. Because why? He's a right-handed bat. And they already are down so many right-handed bats. You don't need the guy. I think Bohm leads a team in RBI, by the way. I think. I'm not 100% sure on that. But I think Alec Bohm leads a team in ribbies. So now you have your RBI leader, your second leading home run guy, out. This is not good for this lineup, but if you're going to have some bit players in the lineup, you're going to need Turner, you're going to need Harper, you're going to need Castellanos, you're going to need Schwarber. That group of guys, the Turner, Harper, Castellanos, Schwarber, and Real Muto, they got to start picking it up. As the month turns to June, we need more games that start off like that. Turner on base, steal second, havoc on the bases, pressure, put pressure on the defense. But you got to be on base first to put pressure on the defense. Alec Bohm out for at least 10 days, maybe more. Bohm has nine more RBI than anyone else on the team this year. So he is the leading RBI guy on the Phillies, and now he's out of the lineup. By far, he's the leading RBI guy. It's, like, it's not like he has like one more RBI than somebody. Like Nine is a pretty significant number. Yeah, he's nine up on the next guy who my guess would probably be Castellanos or Schwarber. Uh, Castellanos, 28, Schwarber, 27. Right, Schwarber because of the 13 home runs that he has. So just by proxy, half of his RBI are home run right there. So you look at this lineup. Again, I am not a fan of the way they have Stott 1, Turner 2. I do understand it because of Harper hitting third. They don't want two left-handers back-to-back. Right with Stott and then Harper, but I would try to you know possibly do something cuz I like Bohm in the 3 spot. You know, maybe and by the way, Schwarber strikes out again. Shocker. He is now 0 for 2 on the day with the strikeout. Um if they could kind of position this lineup with Turner in the leadoff spot, I don't know, do you want to hit Harper 2 and then Bohm 3? The problem right now is that Schwarber has been so bad that to say that you should put him, you know, like Turner, Harper, Bohm, you know, and then after that you put a left-handed bat like Schwarber. Well, Schwarber's been just god-awful. To hit him in the four-hole doesn't even sound doable at this point. So because you have Harper three, I understand that that's why they're putting – but I would actually even think about doing this. I'd hit Turner one, Bohm two with Harper three. So now you have Turner speed, Bohm, who is a gap-to-gap kind of guy, really good approach, hits the ball to all fields, has a little bit of power. He's not overwhelming power, a little disappointing. Um, He's got six. He'll probably end up the year around 18 to 20, which is what I thought at the beginning of the year. But I'm hoping that he can be a 20 to 25 guy at some point of his career. But I would go Turner, Bohm. Harper, Castellanos, 
You might even have to think about putting Stott behind Castellanos now and move Schwarber down even further and Real Muto down even further because those two guys. But I think you got to get Turner back at the top of that lineup and get his speed creating havoc on the bases. For a team that is struggling to score a lot of runs, you've got to try to find ways to get speed on the bases and utilize that speed for a team that doesn't have a lot of speed. He's got a ton of speed. you got to get it on base and utilize it. So the way that I saw this game today, we've been trying to find some positives. The other night we thought Suarez pitched a good game. You know, and for the most part, Nola – uh, was okay last night. He wasn't great last night. He gave up two home runs. And, you know, I third, I think I heard a stat this morning that Nola last year gave up 19 home runs on the season. He's given up 12 already this season. But he went six innings last night. The problem for Nola, as I see it last night, what happened in that game that Nola pitched last night, his ERA actually went up, and but there was something in the game that Nola did that he generally doesn't do and that is walk batters. He had three walks last night. And that's Noah not at his best. When when Noah walks, I mean, how many walks did Noah have all season last year? 29. 29 he already walks. He 18. All season last year. That just tells you he's not something. I don't want to say he's hurt, but he's just not the same guy Something's right off. now. Just say something is off. Whatever it is, something is off. Well, and I just said it. He gave up 19 home runs all of last year. Correct. This year, he's already given up 12. Right. So, But he also leads the National League in innings pitched. So, I mean, it's not – I don't think it's injury then. It's got to be either the pitch clock's in the back of his head still or maybe it's a mechanics issue. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's the story with that game last night. You're trying to take a couple positives away. Well, a couple positives, I guess, would be – you know, you got the home run from Sosa. You got a double from Marsh. Marsh has been kind of slumping. He had two hits last night. I actually just saw him get a hit behind me here. So maybe Marsh is starting to come around a little bit. Really quick, also with Nola, every season in the major leagues, he has had more strikeouts and innings pitched, except for this year. This year he has 65 strikeouts and 74 and two-third innings. So he's also not getting the strikeouts he usually gets either. So it has to make you wonder... You know, maybe it is a mechanics or a mental issue going on with him. Yeah, I, I said this back on opening day, and I'll stick by it to right now, that I think this pitch clock is forcing some guys to get out of routines and they haven't been fixed. I think he's one of them. I think he is one guy that the pitch clock has played with a little bit, has, has kind of rushed him a lot. Um, and listen, it's not changing. The pitch clock isn't changing. So... You're going to have to figure out a way to get used to it. And I hope Aaron Nola makes those adjustments and, and, and slowly um, turns the corner. But there's another thing with Aaron Nola. This is a contract year for him. Mm-hmm. You have to wonder, is that on his mind? Hey, why didn't they sign me? What were they looking for? What didn't I do? Stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? You know, Aaron Nola right now, keep in mind, what did I say yesterday? The Phillies' top prospects are guys like Andrew Painter, um, Mick Abel. They are young pitchers. So there's a part of the Phillies that are saying, I don't want to have to pay 
Aaron Nola, who's going to be 30 years old. Not that that's all that old in baseball pitching world. I mean, you got guys like Max Scherzer and Verlander, although those guys are starting to break down finally. They're 40. But those guys pitch into their late 30s at a pretty high level. I mean, for God's sakes, Verlander won the Cy Young Award last year at 39 years old. So you're hoping that you can get another five, six solid years out of Aaron Nola. But the Phillies have a guy like Andrew Painter who they view as a top-of-the-rotation pitcher. They have a guy like Mick Abel that they hope can be like a number three type of starter. So if I don't have to pay a lot of money to Aaron Nola, I'm not going to go out and pay him before I have to. And right now, if he's going to the negotiation table, and this is the season that I'm putting on my resume, it's not a great one. So I'm not saying that the Phillies are happy about it, but in terms of what they have to pay Nola, potentially, I'm sure they're saying, well, he hasn't been all that good. We could put that in our back pocket. And they hope that he turns it on when it matters the most. The problem with Nola has been that's not been his M.O. His M.O. has been, okay, I'm going to pitch very well against Pittsburgh. I'm going to pitch really well against the Reds. And then when I have big games, I said I seemingly you know, have tough outings. Well, this year, 4-4, four and four, 470 ERA. He threw okay last night, not great. Um, and I think the pitch clock is something that has been a an issue for him. I guess so far, now they're only in the bottom of the fourth, but I think that you have to be at least somewhat encouraged by the effort that Walker is giving you today. This would be the second straight game that Taiwan Walker, who allowed three runs in like seven innings uh, against the Braves the last time he pitched, um, you're starting to hopefully see him now. The score's two to one in the fourth. Let's see if he can get through two or three more innings here. But you have to be at least up to today, right now, in the fourth inning, somewhat encouraged by what you're seeing from Taiwan Walker. Yeah, it's not all doom and gloom with the Phillies. It's just that they haven't put it all together consistently. Like Ranger Suarez had his best game so far this year on Monday, but the team didn't score any runs. A game like today, Walker so far has given you a really good outing. But like you said, how many more innings are you going to get that type of level of production? Well, this is what you thought you were going to get from him for the most part. Solid, middle of the rotation. You know, you're not going to get a guy who's going to spin a gem every single time out when you get a player like this. No, the idea with Walker was is that he was a big-time prospect when he first came up. And... He's evolved into this basically a younger, more talented version of Kyle Gibson. Well, one problem he's having as well is the walks. He has 23 walks this year, and Ooh. he is not a guy who generally walks people. Sorry, and that he just, has been he just a problem. Marte. Sorry, I, I, <laughs> wow. That really slipped out of his hand there. Uh, by the way, it is 2 1 in the fourth. We'll keep you posted on that. No real Muto in the lineup today. Boom has been placed on the 10-day injured list, and Drew Ellis was called up. So Ellis, he's not in the lineup today, but he has uh, basically Rob Thompson was asked, and they said that Drew Ellis is going to be the guy that's going to get the at-bats uh, against left-handed pitching. You know, this is what I was talking about the other day with, with, with Jesus Aguilar, is I think they need to find a right-handed bat with some pop, and people are like, oh, Cody Clements is fine. 
They're not hitting Cody Clements against left-handed pitching. Cody Clements, I didn't say anything about Cody Clements getting pulled or replaced, although I don't need Cody Clements in my lineup every day. I know people get excited when a guy you've never heard of and he plays well for a little stretch of time. You can't hope that Cody Clements is going to continue to give you production if you play him every single day. You have to use him the way that he's intended to be used, as a platoon type of player. He's really supposed to be kind of a utility type. Unfortunately for the Phillies, they are now on their almost fifth first baseman because Hoskins got hurt. He's out. Hall has gotten hurt. He's out. Bohm has been playing first base. He's out. Now you got Clements there as the fourth guy, and now Drew Ellis is there, kind of the fifth first baseman that this team has had a kind of turn to. For what it's worth, in 21 minor league games, Drew Ellis has eight homers, 27 RBI, and is batting 269. All right. Well, those numbers aren't terrible. I mean, obviously, I think Drew Ellis is uh, kind of a, you know, 4A type of player. Uh, he's 27 years old. He was a second round pick. So he's one of these guys that keeps kind of bouncing around. But in his major league career, he has hit 141 with one home run in 35 games since he has been uh, since in, in major league play. In the minor leagues, I guess he has performed a little bit better. But as a major leaguer, the numbers are kind of bleak. Yeah, he has 500 minor league games. And in those 500 minor league games, he has 84 homers and a it's a two forty six batting average. So he's he's not exactly uh, you know, lighting the thing up here. No, and he's 27 years old. He was a high draft pick who has been bouncing around the minors long enough. And I guess now when you need your fifth first baseman, you're, you're getting the call. And Drew Ellis, uh, he'll be in the lineup when the Phillies face a left-handed pitcher unless they make a decision to do something else. Now, I'm interested to see if they give Drew Ellis an opportunity because to select the contract of Drew Ellis, they did have to make a move on the 40-man roster, and they did that by releasing uh, Cal Stevenson, he was a guy that they picked up off waivers from the Giants a few days ago because they are in need of some offense and some depth in this organization. <laughs> They're in need of bodies. <laughs> yeah, big time. Mike, are you available? Uh, I could throw an inning. I could give Can you somebody. Play first base? No, I cannot play first base. Uh, Come hitting, on, Mike. Nah, I was a good hitter up until about 15 years old, and then I broke my wrist. And after I broke my wrist, my hitting was not very good. But I can get somebody out still. I can get you out. I'll give you one inning. I'll get you out. So you and Cody Clemens, you guys can be the emergency bullpen arms. Uh-huh. If you needed someone to finish, like, mop-up duty and just finish the game, I can do that. Um, but uh, I don't think they want to sign a body for one inning. That would be a waste of resources. <laughs> 219 on the Sports Bash Live, 97.3 ESPN. we got a busy show for you today. Uh, the 76ers made it official today. Nick Nurse. We'll speak to the media at 3 o'clock, and you can hear the press conference at 3 o'clock right here on the Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. Nick Nurse introduced to the media today at 3 o'clock. You're home for Sixers basketball. We'll have that press conference for you today at 3 as Nick Nurse is the 26th head coach in Philadelphia 76ers basketball history. When we come back... 
The New York Knicks are monitoring this situation in Philadelphia. Does it pass the sniff test? I'll explain next on the Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. Now, for the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Bash on 97.3 ESPN. Two twenty-five. We've got uh, the Nick Nurse presser coming up. I'm very interested in this one. What is his thoughts on Harden and Bead? What does he think about Maxi's future? Why did he choose Philadelphia over everybody else? Nick Nurse press conference at three o'clock today. By the way, we just said Walker was pitching well. He proceeded to give up a home run. Phillies are down three-two. We'll keep you posted on that. Uh, the New York Knicks are monitoring Joel Embiid's situation in Philadelphia per Tim McMahon of ESPN. Quote, they've looked at that situation in Philly, and there's been hope in New York that stuff in Philly will go haywire to the point where Embiid will ask out. I mean, at this point, with the coach hired, I don't see that happening. I just don't see Embiid saying, hey, I just met with Nick Nurse. I endorsed Nick Nurse, and now I want to be traded. I don't know where the Knicks think that they could monitor the situation in Philadelphia and in any capacity pry away Joel Embiid. Not to mention, if you look at the New York Knicks roster, there isn't two guys on that roster you would take for Joel Embiid. There's really only one guy you would even accept. You know, in you're any not going to take Jalen Brunson one on one. No, but I mean, like, there's only one guy we even consider to start a trade. The rest of the roster is meh. I mean, like you, you can literally give me the entire Knicks starting lineup, and I still wouldn't want it. Yeah, I mean, you can literally say, "Hey, take five guys on this roster, and you can have them." You start with Brunson, then after that, you're like, "I don't really want the rest of these guys." I it's mean, like you don't really want Randall. I mean, Josh Hart sounds good, but, I mean, for Joel Embiid, like, you need more than that. Like, when when the Lakers traded Shaq, they got, like, half the world in that trade for him. The Knicks don't even own half the world. Yeah, I mean, for the Knicks to be monitoring the situation in Philadelphia. um, Sounds like smoke. I get it maybe three weeks ago, two weeks ago, and I don't know when this podcast, it was via the Hoop Collective podcast. Do we know when this uh, podcast was dropped? I saw these quotes today, and I was kind of like, huh, this doesn't sound like something. Now, before they hired Nurse, and Doc Rivers was still the coach. Now, Rivers has been fired for two weeks now. So pre-Rivers, maybe these comments make some sense. But post-Rivers, and now Nick Nurse being hired and introduced today, I don't see a scenario where the Knicks think that they can get Joel Embiid from the Philadelphia 76ers, or quite frankly, any other team? Why? What was it? What was the report about why Nick Nurse chose the Sixers? 
He wanted to build a team that centered around Joel Embiid. Right. He wants to coach Embiid. That was part of the, the draw. He he was interviewing for three jobs mainly. It was the Sixers, the Bucks, and the Suns. And for whatever it's worth, Nick Nurse basically said, I want to coach Embiid over Giannis and Booker. Yeah, so this is what I look at. Nick Nurse meets with Joel Embiid. Joel Embiid signs off. Nick Nurse is hired. All of the conversation around Joel Embiid gets squashed. That's just period, point blank. Because Nick Nurse isn't saying, hey, I want to build a team around Joel Embiid and then have the team say, well, guess what? We decided to trade Joel Embiid. How many people watched the uh, – did you watch the NBA TV thing last night on the Sixers, the um, everything but the chip? Honestly, I completely forgot about it. Well. I was I fell into the rabbit hole that was the American Gladiators. Oh, how was that? That's insane. Like, that thing – I'm just sitting there watching it. I'm thinking, wait, what happened? How did this happen? How did this guy steal all the money? Like – it's the most – I mean, it's up there. I started like, watching it, and then I hit pause, like, literally a minute into it. And I was like – and then I was like, oh, the Iverson thing. And then I flipped over to that. So yeah. I never went back. I know it's a two-parter. It looks yeah. pretty long. It, it's on – I mean, it's on ESPN Plus right now. So, I mean, you can go and watch well, it. Well, the Iverson – it's called Everything But The Chip. Everything it's, But The um, Chip, right. the story of the Sixers 01 team. Right. And it's on, like – it was on ten times. So I just recorded it because I missed the first – 15 minutes of the thing. Yeah, I'll, I'll search it on my Xfinity and DVR it. Yeah, you do, I mean, it's on. going to be on repeat 100 times. But how many people watched that last night? And I bring this up because of what I'm talking about with they're not going to say to Nick Nurse, hey, why do you want to coach this team? Well, I want to coach Joel Embiid. All right, well, we're going to trade Joel Embiid. If you watch the Everything But The Chip documentary last night, what a story about Theo Ratliff. So, if you remember that team that year, Ratliff is an all-star. Right. But he broke his wrist. He ends up getting traded for For Dikembe Mutombo. Mm -hmm. What you didn't know, and it came out in this piece last night, is a lot of guys on that team weren't really, like, pushing for Theo Ratliff to get traded. But what you also didn't know was... The day that Theo Ratliff got traded, he closed on his dream house that he was getting built in Philadelphia. Oh, no. And, yeah, I mean, like, three things happened on the day. He was like, you know, I forget what they were, but, he, you know, he closes on his house. This, all this stuff happens. And Billy King has to say, hey, we just traded you to Houston, uh, Atlanta. Oh, poor guy. Poor guy is right. But my point on this is he didn't know that he was getting traded. Oh, man. He didn't have any clue that he was getting traded. Now, he did say in the documentary, he was at the All-Star game, remember, Theo Ratliff made the All-Star game, but he did not play because he was hurt. Who did play? Dikembe Mutombo, who was the coach of the team. Larry Brown. Larry Brown. And Dikembe um, and Brown became very close at the All-Star game. And Ratliff said he walked into the locker room after the game was over and he saw Larry Brown talking to Dikembe Mutombo and it entered his mind 
that, hey, my time could be coming to an end here because he kind of saw, and apparently Billy King had said that Larry Brown had mentioned Matumbo to him many times. Okay. Like, hey, if we ever get out of the Eastern Conference here, we all know we're going to be playing the Lakers. We're going to have to have somebody to go up against Shaq. And Matumbo was like the main guy people thought of at that time. At that time, Matumbo, who won Defensive Player of the Year that year, if you remember, the Sixers that year had Allen Iverson MVP, Aaron McKee, Sixth Man of the Year. Yep. Dikembe Matumbo was the Defensive Player of the Year, and Larry Brown was the Coach of the Year. Right. So they won four of the major award categories. Yeah, they had everything except for Shaq and Kobe. They had everything but Shaq and Kobe. It was a really cool documentary. It was fun. They had Allen Iverson, not in the same room, but they had him the screen where it looked like Allen and Larry Brown were looking at each other. Okay. And it was almost as if they were watching a monitor of what those guys were saying. Mm. So you had Larry Brown, you had Allen Iverson, you had Pat Croce, and you had Mark Zumoff and Tom McGinnis. Okay. And you had George Lynch, you had Theo Ratliff, you had Eric Snow. So you had pretty much all of the participants of that team that you wanted to hear from. And, you know, that was a team, if you're looking at this team that the Sixers have now, that was a team that for years was getting knocked out. And I say years, I think they got knocked out in the second round twice, right? They lost to the Pacers back-to-back years in the second round. And then they played the Pacers in the first round of the 2001 run. And they end up losing game one of the series. Now, back then, it was only a five-game series. Right. They lost game one at home to the Pacers, who had beaten them in the second round for two straight years. And, you know, Philadelphia goes on. They win game two, they win game three, they win game four, and then they go on to play Toronto. They beat Toronto in seven games. They go on to play Milwaukee, and the rest is history. But that team, you know, had been kind of building its way to that spot and getting knocked out in the second round, getting knocked out in the second round. Right. But they finally got over that second-round hump in their third try. But if you recall, they went to the finals and never came close. After that, in fact, they hadn't been out of the second round since they haven't been to they weren't into the second round. You know, um, they didn't get out of the first round in since they went to the second round. What in 2012 was it? They had that team with Igadala. Right. With Lou Williams that upset the the Bulls, the Bulls. So after Iverson and that team goes to the finals. They don't get back into the playoffs, I mean, into the second round until 2012. So it is not easy to keep these teams, you know, even if you have, like, you're looking at the two teams that are in the finals right now. They are both built way differently. Like, Denver is a highly drafted team. Jokic, Murray, Porter, they are all drafted by, I think, seven guys on Denver. If, if my memory serves, is drafted by the team? Yeah, most of the team is drafted. The only guys who are not drafted are Aaron Gordon, Contavious Caldwell, Pope, and Bruce Brown. And then you have Miami, who is a high 
free agent and undrafted rookie free agent list. And not a lot of guys that they drafted on that team. So, you know, people talk about how to build a team. You go to that Sixer team. Yeah, Allen Iverson was the number one overall pick, but everybody else was basically a vagabond. Yeah, bits and pieces put together. You had Tyrone Hill was picked up from, I think, Milwaukee. You had George Lynch. You had Eric Snow, who, you know, nobody even knew who Eric Snow was. You traded for him with Seattle, I believe. He played for the Sonics and made some nondescript trade and got Eric Snow in that deal. And I remember when that happened because people were like, who is Eric Snow? Yeah, he was the third point guard in Seattle. He wasn't like their backup. He wasn't their starter. He was like the third guy, never got any playing time. And who's the other guy on that team? You know, uh, oh, Ratliff. And Ratliff was kind of... Remember, they also uh, traded for Tyrone Hill. I said Tyrone Hill. Okay. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I said they traded for him from Milwaukee. George Lynch, Eric Snow, they traded from Seattle. And then they had a guy, Rajah Bell, if you remember him. I think he was kind of a cast off from someplace else. You know, they didn't draft a lot of guys on that team, the Sixers. But... They kind of put the thing. But, you know, to the point of the story is there's a lot of ways to build the team. Right. You just kind of have to figure out what is the best way to find something around your star. Right. And the Sixers found something around their star. The problem with that was Allen said after the run that he was almost like in tears of joy that the run was over because he was so beat up. Right. You know, he said, my body was just so beat up that I just don't even think I could keep playing. Like, the fact that it was over, I was just happy that I didn't have to play again tomorrow. And if you remember the Sixers, that team, they finished the year at 15 and 14 in the last 29 games. Due in large part was they traded for Matumbo and they had to kind of incorporate him. And they were just banged up. It was just a beat up group. And when they played the games against the Lakers in the NBA Finals, they were a beat-up team. And that team's shelf life was very small because Allen Iverson was so small. You know, you didn't get that high of a level of Allen Iverson again after that. And with everything that happened, where's my coach, all the, you know, talking about the coach – in that documentary last night, if those for, the, for those of you who watched it will remember that they had this moment where Pat Croce calls Iverson and Larry Brown into a room together. And Brown was, like, insulted that he got called into the room here. In his mind, he's the head coach. He's above the players. You know, he shouldn't minimize him to the same level as the players because if you did that, you would take away some of, like, his authority. As the main as, as the main decision maker on a team, you can't put a player on the same level as the coach. And Croce was trying to let Brown understand that we understand that Coach Brown has a passion for basketball and he's trying to get the best out of Allen, but he also wanted Brown to understand that Allen had the, could match his passion for basketball that Larry just had to understand that. Mm-hmm. And getting them in the room finally got them both to see, hey, I care about basketball as much as you do. Interesting. Now, Billy King said in the documentary that he thinks from that moment that Larry Brown kind of resented the organization. Like, he never felt the same 
about his standing with the team, that the player was on the same. Now, it ended up working out for their relationship, but for his role as the coach, he, I think the way that King kind of, you know, was, was talking well, he verbalized about it, it yeah. was that, yeah, he, he felt that Larry always kind of looked at that moment as I kind of got stripped down a little bit. I mean, that's a shame that he felt that way because sometimes there needs to be interventions in different situations. There's there's tons of stories in sports where different people get involved in different relationships as a mediator and help fix the relationship. It's not the first time it's ever going to happen. It won't be the last. And it's a shame that Larry... Well, he's an old school coach, and the old school coach feels like I'm the coach... I'm in charge. Right. And this was the crossing over of a time where more player empowerment was coming in, and Allen wanted to have equal footing to the coach. Right, and Pat Croce saw that, and Larry Brown didn't. I really felt like I could have helped them win if they were patient and let me get healthy. Who said that, and is he right? You'll be very surprised. That's next. This is the Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. Now, Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN, South Jersey's sports leader. 246 Sports Bash, 97.3 ESPN. Mike Gill, I really feel like I could have helped them win if they were patient and let me get healthy. That's what Markel Fultz said on a recent podcast on his time with the Sixers. He had more to say. Were the Sixers too quick to give up on the former number one overall pick? Here is what Markel Fultz said. He looks back on his situation and his time with Philadelphia. I don't know. It was a it was a weird situation, you yeah. know. And and like again, I understand that it's a business, and I and again, I understood. I understand now, like the business and in and outs of everything. So like again, I was just worried about. I was thankful to be able to be moved to somewhere where uh, I had a second chance and an opportunity to, yeah, to they, grow. They, and, and, you know, they, they wanted to win. I, I wish I had a chance to, to, to help them because I really feel like I could have helped them, you know, win if they were patient and, you know, let me get healthy. But at the same time, I'm, I'm thankful for everything that they did for me and, and everything worked out good. You know, it's interesting to hear him say that because we never really heard Markel talk about what happened with him here. And he said if they would have let me get healthy. I think that's the first indication is that when he was here, he believes and he is saying, I wasn't myself. I was injured. And, of course, the Sixers traded him. And I said the day they they traded him that, yeah, they had to make the move. I got it. And he just said, I wish they were more patient. When he got traded, the Sixers were in a situation where they were in win-now mode. And they could not wait for this kid any longer. But – Looking back, look what he's done this season with the Orlando Magic. The problem is you can't be that patient in the NBA. Nobody's that patient. You look at what Markel Fultz did this year in 60 games. I mean, you look at it, he scored 14 points a game. That's not terrific. But if you look at what he did at the end of the season when he really started to kind of turn the corner a little bit, you look at a guy who I think next year – is going to be scratching the 20-point barrier. I think he's a guy that is all of a sudden kind of clicked, kind of got it going on, kind of says, all right, you know, this guy's been in the league for like five, uh, one, two, three, four, five. I guess he's been in the league like six years now. I guess he was drafted in 2017 or 2018, somewhere around there. So you're taking a look at a guy who now finally 
has his, you know, kind of has the league under him. He kind of knows what to uh, what to do, where to be, all that kind of stuff. But in February, 16 points a game. In March, 16.6 points a game. You started to see the score. I mean, November, he played one game. He averaged eight points. December, he averaged 11 and a half points. January, 12. February, 16. March, 16.6. But 16.6 points, six assists, four rebounds. You're starting to see the makings of somebody who is starting to get it a little bit. And... It would be interesting to see if the Sixers would have had patience with him. The problem is, you know, he got hurt. He was hurt in Philly, bizarrely hurt in Philly. I mean, I'm not sitting here saying that anybody should have said, hey, this is normal. I mean, it just wasn't normal what happened to him. But if you look back at his time in Philly, obviously he had something bizarre happening. And he goes to Orlando and he ends up tearing his ACL there and getting hurt. But his time in Orlando has been filled with a lot of growth, and he is now becoming, and we say this a lot, the Sixers drafted Markell to kind of be that three-level scorer, and they could really use a guy like this, a guy who can put the ball on the floor, create a shot, mid-level jumper, elbow jumper. His three-point shot is... Probably something that is the next thing for him to kind of, because when he got drafted number one overall, it was because he was a three-point shooter. He shot the three at over 40% in college because he could take the ball to basket and score because he could shoot from the, you know, pretty much anywhere on the court. The Sixers were drafting him number one overall to get that three-pronged score, that guy who can give them buckets in a variety of ways. If you watched Orlando, and I'm going to imagine most people didn't, (laughs) but if you watched Orlando late in the season, you started to see a guy who is starting to get it in terms of offensively. 16.6 in the month of March. 15 games, he averaged 16.6 points, 6.3 rebounds, uh, assists, excuse me, and 4.2 rebounds. The last thing that he needs to kind of come his way is he got to get that three-point shot in order. He shot um, during that time in March in those 15 games. He only shot 26% from three. He did shoot 37% from three in December. So I guess it's in there somewhere. But I would imagine now fully healthy that he will use this offseason to work on that part of his game. And I think the Magic now are going to get a guy. I I said this before. You know, I've been winning money on Markel Fultz with my buddy who hates him and thinks that he stinks. I just keep stealing this poor guy's money. You know, because we did a a, uh, bet like two or three years ago. I said, you know, he'll average, I think it was 10 points a game or 12 points a game. I don't remember exactly. I think it was 12. I said he'll average 12. He averaged 12.1. And when I said, do you want to bet me again? I'll give you something else. You know, and and every year, nah, he stinks, he stinks. Well, next year, this year he averaged 14. I will say that I think Fultz next year for Orlando will probably get them 18 a night. That would be my number for him. Now, I'm not looking back because I remember when they made the trade, 
saying that this is a trade that they're probably going to end up looking back and regretting. I don't think there's regret in the trade, but he's certainly a more productive player than what you got back in return, and he's a player that this team could use big time. A guy who could put the ball on the floor, score in a variety of ways, handle the ball, and he plays really good defense. It's a shame. It's a sad story. And I'm glad, though, that he's finally kind of come out and said, you know, hey, I wish they could be more patient. I understand. He seems way more mature today as a, I don't know, he's a 25-year-old kid. When he got drafted here, he was 19 years old. And these are some of the reasons why I don't think these players should be entering the league at that age. Markel was probably more than talented enough to compete at this level. But I don't know that these guys are ready to have a job every day with that kind of money at that age. I think one of the points that needs to be brought up with all of this is that one could argue, and I would argue, that Markel Fultz never becomes the player he is today if he stayed in Philadelphia. In theory, That's a good point. In theory, yes, he could have helped this team. But the situation in Philadelphia was such a dumpster fire. And then Colangelo getting fired, the guy who drafted him, the Ben Simmons that fiasco that would come on board in the years to come, the multiple injuries, Jimmy Butler in and out of town, Tobias Harris, Al Horford. I mean, you're asking a young man who's 19, 20, 21 years old to be able to grow and develop in an environment that we should all be thankful to God and be developed in and became an MVP. Yeah, there's been a lot of craziness that has gone on here, and he was stuck right in the middle of it. He got traded, and in Orlando, his first full season in Orlando, he started 60 games, 27 minutes a game. He averaged 12 points, and I always say, it's amazing that he averaged 12 points a game when everybody knows he's not shooting a three. Just like Ben. He did shoot the three, you know, connected on 26% of them, which is not good. Being traded to Orlando was the best thing to ever happen to Markel Fultz. Yeah, I'm glad, though, that he finally talked about it a little bit. And um, would he have helped this team? I don't know. If you would have got the guy that you thought you were getting, probably. But the one that you have now, yeah, in hindsight, this guy would help this team. Not the guy that you had the last five or six years. All right, coming up next, Nick Nurse will be introduced to you guys. You'll hear his press conference next on the Sports Bash. This is the Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN. Now, live inside the Matt Black Kia Studios, here's Mike Gill. Mike Gill with you, Nick Nurse. Press conference coming up in just moments. I would imagine he'll be asked about why he chose Philly, thoughts on James Harden, what he plans on doing with Joel Embiid, how can he get more from Tyrese Maxey. You'll hear that coming up in just a matter of moments here on the Sports Bash Live on 97.3 ESPN as Nick Nurse will meet the media in moments here. Nick Nurse, the 26th head coach of the Philadelphia 76ers, of course, formerly a 2019 NBA champion with the Toronto Raptors. He was also, people forget, you know, they won the championship in 2019. The very next season, he was the NBA's coach of the year. Uh, That doesn't seem to matter anymore. You win a championship, you stink. You win a coach of the year award, you're not very good. The award for coach of the year for Nick Nurse came with a team 
that was without Kawhi Leonard. You remember they won that championship, and then they went on to win. Uh, excuse me, they went on uh, the next season to go back to the playoffs. But we will bring Nick Nurse to you here in just a couple of moments on the Sports Bash Live on 97.3 ESPN. We will be reacting to it tonight, by the way, at 5.30 with Jim Lynham. Here is owner Josh Harris. And, uh, you know, we thought, we think, look, he's incredibly innovative, smart, and I think we, we think he's going to help us achieve our goal, which, as all of you know, and as Daryl, Elton, and everyone on our side knows, is to win an NBA title. You know, obviously, we haven't achieved it. Uh, that sits really bad, as, as bad or worse with us as it does with you. But all we can tell you is uh, that we're going to work tirelessly until we do. And I think Nick is going to be, be a big p- part of that success. So with that, I'd like to turn it over to Daryl, and thank you for being here. Really appreciate it. So I, I just have one mission, along with Elton and our staff, and that's how do we, how do we get ourselves to a championship? Um, uh, that we're work tireless, tirelessly towards that goal. Um, we're pretty excited about this first step. Obviously, I have a lot of work to do from here, but having the chance to add uh, Coach Nurse. Uh, to the 76ers is, you know, personally really, really cool just because we've had a a long-term relationship. Uh, He's been a championship coach at so many levels. I think five, at least five championships at all different stops that he's done to grind and continue to improve, uh, including one that's really familiar with Sixers fans, obviously, uh, you know, beating us in that, uh, that one series. So, um, you know, he's he's someone who's a lifelong learner, always trying to find that next edge. Um, and we're excited to be a partner with him as, as we work on the roster and, and into next season. Thanks, um, This is the first time I've been in front of the media since I left Toronto. So um, the first thing I'd like to say is that uh, it was 10 great years in Toronto. Um, Masai Ujiri and Larry Tannenbaum, Bobby Webster, everybody, they treated me really well there. It was a fascinating city, fascinating country, uh, lots of good players, etc. Um, so very, very grateful for, for those 10 years, for sure. And saying that, um, I am super excited to be here. This is a um, very good team, first of all. Um, the tradition... Uh, the city uh, as a sporting city uh, and of this organization um, is amazing and uh, I'm honored and, and humbled um, and excited to be to be the new head coach of the 76ers. Thank you. Hey, how you doing, Nick? Over here. What's up, man? Um, the question I have you, I know this is a, a great city, whatever. Um, but you had other opportunities, Milwaukee and, and Phoenix. What was the one thing that stood out to you with this roster? And I know Joel and B, but the one thing that made this the perfect job for you? Well, uh, there's, there's several things you're evaluating. Um, first of all, I know it's a good team because I'm in the trenches trying to trying to battle you guys a lot. And, and uh, pretty good rivalry, right? We saw each other a lot in playoffs and stuff as well. Cert- certainly a big factor. Um and then, and then it's um, 
you know, I think what's most important is is ownership. You know, um, just just like the other side, you do your research and everything. I hear is super positive, um, and I know Daryl and Daryl's track record of getting players and putting together a roster that can compete for the title. I think speaks for itself, and um, that's what made it a fairly easy decision in the end. Hi, Nick. Uh, Mike Sielski from the Philadelphia Inquirer. You took some criticism in Toronto for criticizing players, at least reportedly, criticizing players in public before you had spoken to them behind closed doors. How accurate was that, and do you think that's something you need to rectify? Well, first of all, um, communication and relationships is the key to doing this job really well, right? And um, always communicate directly with the players um, on anything. If there's issues or if there's schemes or if there's improvement areas or anything, be very direct and, and um, handle that kind of stuff one-on-one, face-to-face, sometimes in team setting. Communication is the, is the key to being a successful head coach and uh, we'll continue to do that here. Uh, Dan, Dan Gelston, the Associated Press. How you doing, Nick? How are you? Um, you, know, you said you've been in this trenches with this team, but there's been something that hasn't quite been unlocked that's been able to get it past the second round. What do you feel that's been missing that you see when you're on the other side, and what do you feel you can bring to unlock that? How will you unlock it? Yeah, I mean, my first thought on that is this team could be playing tonight. Right, I think that along with some others in the Eastern Conference that probably are wishing they were getting ready to throw the ball up tonight, and that uh, combination of of staying healthy, the ball bouncing your way, um, you know, uh, figuring out the long grind that it is to go from the start of the playoffs to winning a title, all those things. You know very difficult like you know you gotta be you gotta be able to do all that stuff and as far as the rest of it i look at it like this way i don't i don't really vibrate on the frequency of the past like to me when uh we get a chance to start and dig into this thing a little bit it's going to be only focused on what we're trying to do going forward that doesn't matter next season whatever's happened for the last how many whatever years doesn't matter to me and it is similar to to toronto a little bit Right, that that um, be kind of a clean slate for me. Just looking forward to how we can get it done from from start to finish. Hey, Nick, Gina Mizell from the Philadelphia Inquirer as well. Good to see you. Um, for both you and Daryl, um, Daryl, you mentioned that you guys have a history together. Obviously, just can you take us back to when you guys first worked together um, with the Rockets organization in Rio Grande? Maybe what that was like and then why it made sense to to reunite you know basically a decade later well for for me um i was i was coaching uh the iowa energy at the time in the in the old d league now the g league uh as my home state um but i was interested in going to work with uh daryl once we started talking i mean there was a lot of kind of um analytical things innovative ideas etc and and that kind of really triggered me i thought i thought it'd be a chance for me to grow as a coach and you know i can just remember some of the things leading in there was like you know use that as like a laboratory we're going to try this and try that and and i think that was kind of what i'd been doing um some of the other 
places I'd been coaching, just just trying things, and when they work, we kind of keep them in our toolbox, and we don't work, we crumple them up and get rid get rid of them right away. But but he encouraged encouraged uh, innovation and creativity, and and trying to find a better way to do things, and that's what triggered me to go there originally. Yeah, I think just thinking back at that time, we were looking for. A lot of what we're looking for now in, in this search, which is a partner who you can define an objective and say, use their creative basketball mind to see how to achieve that, whether it be certain tactical things on the floor or certain ways to construct a roster that um, obviously everyone's fighting for the same uh, you know, cap tax type resources where you have to fit everything in. Uh, great coaches can help you unlock players that maybe can create value that other teams don't see or can't unlock and that's that's the key it's like how do you get these players who can help uh in a partnership with the front office and the coach uh to achieve a greater you know greater objective nick just uh you know you were able to win a championship your first year in toronto um, you have two teams that are in the finals right now that have a lot of continuity that have you know played together, coached, uh, have the same coach. How do you kind of make up that gap, you know, that continuity, trying to win a championship your first year in a new place? Well, I think we we uh, will have some continuity on the floor, and I think that's probably the most important thing. Um, as I study, I mean, I've studied I've studied the Sixers a lot in preparation for playing them, but as I dig, do a deeper dive into studying them, I think it always comes down to this. It's, it's, I'm going to keep all the things that I think are really applicable and that they do really well. We're going to try to cut out some of the things that maybe we can improve on, or, or, and, and it'll kind of develop, you know, from there. And, and that that journey will start day one, and then you get to, it takes a bit to get to know each other, both both coaches and staff knowing players, and players knowing the coaches and staffs, and then we're just kind of constantly polishing and um, testing and moving, you know, whatever it is as we prepare to get to the end of, you know, of, of April and May and then June, hopefully, right? So um, I, I like that there's going to be some continuity. We know that, right? There's going to be plenty of guys that are under contract coming back, and then it's going to be our job as a staff to to try to get them up to speed and, and build it as we go. Yeah, I, th- I think winning a title in the first year as head coach is too hard. It probably can't be done. <laughs> Nick, hi, uh, Don Bell, CBS News, Philadelphia. You were able to manage, load manage Kawhi Leonard and obviously the Raptors to a title in 2019. How might that experience with Kawhi help you with Joel? Well, I think it'll help a lot. Um, like you said, the 18-19 season, we went into that with Kawhi, who hadn't played in a long time, so we knew there was going to be a uh, load management is, is the term. I'm not sure it was the term at the time, but we knew there was uh, basically a plan of how we were going to, you know, we looked at the season in totality, and, and this is like what we think would be a good plan, kind of break it down month by month, and then kind of like everything else, as you're going, you kind of shift the path or, or, or change as more more evidence or information becomes available to you. And, and go from there. But I think it's it's almost like a, a subset of a season when you've got a player like that. Is It is a long-term, season-long vision and plan you have to put together. And then you got to kind of build it up and, and adjust and change as you go. But I, I would 
Yeah, I think that going through that with with uh, Toronto in eighteen nineteen should be very valuable. Hi, Nick. Dave Ram from uh, from KYW News Radio here in Philadelphia. Um, I know you and Joel have uh, expressed respect for one another in the media before. Uh, Keith, the other day, reported your meeting went well, but at the same time, Joel has taken some jabs at you in the media, the Nick Nurse route of talking to the referees. Um, how, um, how do you think that you can make your relationship with Joel work during your time here? And then the second part to that question, given the success at times that you have had against him, what do you think you can do to take his level of success to that next level? All right, that's a good question. A lot, a lot, of, a lot of stuff in there. First of all, first of all, I think that um, it's been an interesting experience uh, coaching against Joel and on many different seasons. And and I'll answer the last part of your question. Like we threw everything, almost. I think you could possibly throw at a guy because um, it was it was that hard for us to try to stop him. Right, so we, we threw a lot at him. So at least I think that we can offensively say this is what we did and here's how we can beat it. And, and we've almost covered every, most things, right? So, so there's one, one part of that. But, you know, the rest of that, um, it's just, it's, just uh, well, it's, it's a little bit entertaining for me because I understand there was some exchanges and things. I didn't even really, like, when you're out there and you're in the heat of really competing, like, I don't even really remember them, but I, like, accidentally had my TV on yesterday, and I saw a couple of them, and they, they were pretty good. Like, I was like, man, I don't even remember that, but now I know what everybody's, what everybody's talking about here a little bit. But, and then it kind of grew to such a, such a, for me anyway, a, a respect level of, of him, you know, it was, it was, we'd throw one thing, and, and literally, even, even in that playoff series, you know, a game later, he would adjust to it and we couldn't do what we you know we kind of were banking on this you know that we could do and and he'd adjust to it so um you know my you know i guess again it was it was a tremendous amount of respect level for me and then you know as far as the um building the relationship i mean listen i think he's he i think he really wants he really competes and he really wants to be great and just it's a collaborative effort effort like like here's how how do you see it here's how i see it you know, let's let's figure this out, and and you know, for for me, I just want to, him to have as much success as possible, and and that translate to team success as well. Yeah. Nick Howard Eskin, Sports Radio, WIP, right here, right here, to Daryl Trent Krim. Uh But uh, you talked about philosophies about getting this team to win a championship. The team doesn't seem to be able to get past the second round. You figured out a way. Can you be more specific how you what you can do with this team, with the core you have, whether James Harden's back or not, yeah. to win a championship? Well, um, for, the first thing is, and this, this is, again, a little bit of um, experience or historical background, is... is you know, some teams, you know, there, there's, you guys have mentioned the second round to me twice already, and I, we're going to hit that head on. Like, we know, like, we're going to, we're, we're judged on how we play in the playoffs. Like, it was the same in Toronto that we hadn't, we hadn't played that well, and, and certain players hadn't played that well, and all those kind of things. So, the reality is that's, that's the truth. So, 
I would imagine from day one we're gonna we're gonna talk about that, and that we're gonna try to attack that. You know, we're gonna we're gonna have to face it, and we're gonna have to rise above it. That's that's the mentality part I think that you're gonna have to take, right? And then there's all kinds of other things like. Can, can we tactically do things? Can we adjust on the fly? Can we improve as the season goes on? And that's, that's you know, that's a goal of a coach is as you go, you want to keep getting better. And then you get to the playoffs and you're one team. And that's that's a two-month-long journey. And you got to be better at the end of those two months. And do you want James Harden round. back? Pardon me? Do you want James Harden back? James Harden's a great player. That, that yep. didn't answer the question. Well, I would say this is that... Um, uh, James has a decision to make, and um, I'd be very happy if he came back. Yeah. And, Daryl, one quick question for you. Uh, you said when you were here before, when you announced relieving uh, Coach Rivers, that you wouldn't let players be deciders in, in the, involved in the process. Well, it was reported, and obviously, apparently, there's nobody's denied it, Joel and Nick met. So you did let players get involved in the process. And if that's the case, why? Yeah, I'd say, look, I think for a coach to succeed in this league, he has to have, like you mentioned, great relationship with his players, especially his top players. Uh, Coach Nurse has talked to all the top players on the team. So, But in terms of, like, the final decision on coach, that was mine. Nick. Dave Murphy with the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, like game of basketball has changed a lot over the course of your coaching career. Um, you've been at the cutting edge of that at times. Your best player is a big man now. How do you see that fitting into kind of the current modern NBA and, and your offense, and what can you do to kind of make Joel Embiid part of a functional championship offense? Yeah, I think um, the game is constantly changing. First of all, I think that you've got to always be trying to look at, like, maybe how things are shifting or how things are shifting back, uh, et cetera. And, and, you know, there's a, there's a stretch maybe where people say, well, you know, the big man is out. Well, a pretty good big man playing tonight for the whole thing, right? I mean, I think, I think there might be a swing back maybe the other way. I, mean, I don't know, but you got to kind of pay attention to, to all that stuff. But, you know, for me, like, um, uh, Joel has a lot of attributes first of all defensively very very good right and then offensively he's very very skilled and again it's a little bit early but i think that once it starts and it starts uh unfolding and and we start learning each other and all those kind of things we're just going to try to max it out right whatever that means i can't i can't sit here and tell you tactically what that means today but we're gonna we're gonna certainly try to put him in situations where he's going to be super dominant i mean with regard to Jokic, who you mentioned um i mean both i think yes he's a big man but if you look at him and butler they're also both kind of facilitators you know um is that something that you think joel needs um to incorporate a little more into his game well i think that um a couple things uh the short answer to that is yes i think he's got the ability to do that i think it's part of what what um i historically like to do um, as well, um, I also think that there's a lot of changing defenses now, a lot more than you're than you've probably seen. I don't know, six or seven years ago. So you've got to be able to combat and be ready for all those. There's a lot more switching, all those things going on. Um, and we just got to be ready for all of it. 
Yeah. Hey, Nick. Right here. Uh, Kyle Newbeck, Philly yeah. voice. Uh, Tyrese Maxey, probably one of your clearest paths to you know any kind of big internal improvement, I guess. Yeah. From afar, what has your impression of him been? And then what do you see as, I guess, the next step that you can help him take to, to be that sort of maybe all-star level player? Yeah, first of all, from, from afar, playing against him was very difficult. Just this, the sheer speed and quickness and and that he has is is it was it was tough uh you know to game plan against him just like sometimes you just can't beat the speed you can't come up with anything to beat the speed and and but what he did man what our experience was is it wasn't just speed and layups and he started shooting the ball really well and then he started making you know little further layups and then a little further when we were trying our best to get him away from the rim but he'd still still make a lot of those so uh i think you're i agree with you first of all your your thought and your question is is he's got a uh tremendous chance to improve and take a step forward and from all indications and uh that he's really hungry to do so good good worker good person really wants to get better there's some specifics i would say you know making making being more of a creator uh you know said it about about well what is creating well creating is you're scoring or you're drawing more people than one and then you're creating for others so can he can he make the reads all the reads and i think that's like the first place i would start offensively is is getting him you know more reps in the pick and roll so he can make make the reads to all the other players on the floor depending on what he sees right yeah Obviously, defensively, a lot of your guards you had success with in Toronto, Fred VanVleet, Kyle Lowry, not necessarily the biggest guys. And your system in Toronto, heavily predicated on wings and guards, kind of pinching the paint, closing out. I guess a guy like Maxi, who his defensive reputation hasn't been you know, the best, uh, what is the path to turning a smaller guard into you know, an impactful defensive player? Yeah, um... You used a good word there, impactful. You gotta, you gotta impact the ball a lot as a small player. Like get, get into it, get up underneath people, get over screens, impact the body of the ball handler. That's 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 one thing. I would, I would say that um, we um, didn't really think that he wasn't a good defender. We thought he was. Again, we thought you know with that with that quickness and speed and all those things that that our guy you know he could he could get up the floor a little bit and disrupt rhythm and all those kind of things um so we'll see but yeah we're gonna i mean one of the things is is um you know we like to guard pretty hard and especially the ball so um we will certainly be diving into that and probably working on that with him yeah hey john clark with nbc sports philadelphia you talked about being able to talk to joel have you had a chance to talk to james harden since you've taken over i have and what would be your sell job to him about why maybe you can unlock something with him him staying here him and joel and the rest of the team yeah i mean listen i think that um um we didn't get into that right when we talked um i i'm gonna sit down as i am with all the guys i'm gonna go sit down with them all one-on-one face to face here shortly um but listen i think that um winning is always the sell right can can we 
be good enough to win it all. That's that's got to be a goal of his. Um, and if it isn't, then he should stay here and play for us because I think there's there's a possibility of that. Did you take the job hoping and expecting that he would be back or not sure and not expecting that he would come back? I took the job because of these two guys and their track record of, of, of all of it. I mean, listen, I think that, uh, again, I'll get a deeper dive and deeper look at what we actually have and are going to gonna have going forward later in the summer. Like, like it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for me to go super deep into to what we have until we know what we have. Uh, go, I'll go super deep into guys we know that are coming back and what skills and things that they may need to develop between now and training camp. But no, I took the I took the job because of these two guys and the players. Yep. Got two more. We'll start with Kai Carlin and Austin Crow. Hey Nick, um, Kai Carlin, Sixers Wire. Fred Van Vliet described you as a different guy. Is just in terms of like the schemes and things that you kind of come up with. Can, <laughs> what, what, like, what's it going to take to kind of get like these guys to maybe buy into maybe an, an, uh, an unorthodox scheme or anything yeah. like that, in, like in the middle of a game? Yeah, ju- just like just like uh, all of it. Um, you know, again, it's a collaborative effort. This, the, the different, unique, something they've never done or I've never done, is goes to them and explain to them as to why we think it might work, and then they've got to kind of to buy it and 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 then they've got to go do it and if it doesn't work and it's a really bad idea like i said we don't we're gonna crumple it up pretty quick and move on to something else but if it does we kind of put it over here and sometimes we call our playoff toolbox something we've tried that worked on a certain guy that we may need down the road and and it really starts with asking them to be open-minded you know like like be open-minded here and we're going to probably do some things that you haven't done before and i know that because sometimes they don't eat we don't even, as a coaching staff, know what they are. They present themselves with a certain group of guys against a certain opponent in a certain situation. So it's kind of open-minded us in a collaborative effort, really. Yep. Hey, Nick. Austin Krell, ThePaintedLines.com. Um, obviously, you're pretty you know, new to this situation in Philly, but from what you do know about the personnel that you do have, do you envision it in more of a, a time to integrate defense or offense in terms of what you want to do? Well, I certainly um, uh, believe in you got to play both ends, right? That that both both ends are really important, um, and I think the style that ends up being the style for the team will be based on how we feel as a staff. Like you know, like again, we like to guard. I think it's really important. We like to. Our coaching staff is going to try to put great uh, game plans on both sides of the ball together each and every night. Um, uh, we want to sco- we don't we want to score efficiently. I think that is always like like can we create more possessions in our opponent? Can we take efficient shots? Can we you know have low turnovers? You know can we get on the offensive glass? All those things that that make an efficient offense. And, and it looks different for every team, and sometimes it looks different for the same team from season to season. So I think that's all kind of TBD. Yeah. Last question, Timbata. Darrell, there were a lot of really high-profile, successful coaches on the market. What stood out about Nick in terms of why he was the choice to best lead Philly forward? Yeah, I think uh, spoke about what we were looking for a couple weeks ago. Um, obviously, championship pedigree at multiple levels is a big, big factor. Um, 
you know, his creativity. Uh, like I mentioned before, the fact that, um, you know, a partner and how to create results together, I think is a big factor. I think, you know, he sort of checks every box, relationships with players, working with star players, uh, tactics, um, someone that people in the league want to play for. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty long list, and we thought he was a pretty special candidate. And, you know, I appreciate, um, you know, Josh and David, you know, giving us the resources to help make it happen. I think, uh, you know, this is just one step towards a championship, but we think it's an important step. And you've, you, Nick, you've talked a bunch about, you know, people have asked different ways about you being a creative coach. Obviously, in Toronto, you guys had a very different kind of roster, you know, longer, more athletic, you know, didn't have a guy like Joel in the middle necessarily. Are you excited to have an opportunity to work with a guy like that and to kind of do things a little bit different way than you were in Toronto? Well, I think, again, that that's, you know, what we did in Toronto. We're just trying to maximize what the roster looked like. I mean, we really had to generate turnovers and get out and score and transition, all those things. We, you know, 2018, 19 was a different roster. We did have, you know, Gasol, and so you know, we, we played a, a different style and and a different defense. And again, it's gonna gonna be like um, whatever's best for this team, right? Whatever's best for this team, and to try to get them to be the best they can be. Thank you. All right, there you go, Nick Nurse, right here on the Sports Bash Live, 97.3 ESPN. You got a little insight to what he thought. I took down. A bunch of different notes. One, two, three, one, two, three, four, five. About five things that really jumped off to me. A couple other things that are worth mentioning. We'll get into that. Give me your thoughts on what you heard from Nick Nurse there. What stood out about that press conference? 609-403-0973. We're going to talk about it tonight with Jim Lineham at 530. So stick around. Give you my reaction to what I what really stood out to me in that conversation. Um, first time I've really heard Nick talk for about a half an hour like that. Pretty insightful, thoughtful guy in terms of the way he broke down some of those answers. Um, but I'll give you the five things that really stood out to me, plus a couple other nuggets from that conversation with Nick Nurse coming up next on the Sports Bash Live on 97.3 ESPN. Now, back. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. On 97.3 ESPN. All right, 337. Phil's about to be swept by the Mets. They are down to their final two outs. Runner on and Schorber at the plate. Down 4-2 to the Mets here in the ninth. I'll keep you up to date on that. Sports Bash Live on Mike Gill. At Mike Gill Show. Follow me on Twitter. See if Schwarber can work his way on base. Got a full count, by the way. Uh, you just heard from Nick Nurse, the new Sixer head coach. Any reaction to that, let me know. 609-403-0973. Text me your thoughts. You can 
get in on the text board, 609-403-0973. Or if you're listening on the mobile app, just hit the message us function on the app on your phone. I got a couple takeaways from Nick Nurse that I thought really stood out. One, you know, it was reported that he talked to Joel Embiid and that why he took this job was Joel Embiid. He was asked about, you know, why did he take this job today? And one of the things that he essentially said was it was because of these two guys right here, and he pointed at Josh Harris, and he pointed at Daryl Morey. And I think a lot of times when a coach says, hey, it's because of these guys, it's the ownership group and the general manager, we kind of scoff at it, why wouldn't it be the players? But I think if you listen to our show yesterday and our conversation with David Sampson, former team president of the Miami Marlins, those things become more and more important to the players and the coaches is how the organization is run. How are teams going to run the organization long-term? So how will this team look with these guys as a roster? Who knows? This guy could demand a trade. This guy could not be as good. This guy could get hurt. But I know with these two guys in place, by the way, Schwarber struck out looking and is not happy about it, and they're down to their final out. But if I can, if somebody gets hurt or this happens or that happens, if I can trust that these two guys are here, that is something. So he essentially said, I trust the Sixers' front office and ownership group more than I do Phoenix, more than I do Milwaukee. Phoenix has a brand-new owner. You have no idea what's going to happen with the ownership group out there. And Milwaukee's ownership is all sorts of wonky. I mean, they have like a lottery of who's in charge like every three years or so. Somebody else is the new decision-maker for the Milwaukee Bucks. So when we talk about all of the craziness that has happened with the Philadelphia 76ers over the last couple of years, Nick Nurse still thinks this organization's more stable than some other ones, and that's pretty crazy to think about. That was one thing that stood out to me. One. Two. He talked about, he hinted at anyway, that there was a lot of continuity on the floor with the Sixers, and he expected that to be the case here. So I don't know if he has inside information. I don't know that he's given us any insight. But it sounded as if he was like, hey, there's continuity on the floor here. And it's something that James Harden said at the end of last year. You know, hey, we've only been together for one playoff run or two. And the other teams, Celtics, Bucks, yada, yada, have been together. And he basically hinted at, Harden did at the end of last year, that give us more of an opportunity to be together. So continuity on the floor is something Nurse brought up. He was also pressed on James Harden. And he did say James Harden's a very good player. And they said, well, do you want James Harden back? He said, I would be very happy if James was back. Yes. So he didn't say, yes, I want James Harden back. He said, I would be very happy if James Harden was back. He didn't say, no, I don't want James Harden. He did say he has spoken to James Harden on the phone, and he said he planned to meet with him before he hits free agency. 
and he was asked what his sales pitch is. He says, winning, that's the sales pitch. So I think the whole dynamic between Nurse and Harden still needs to be ironed out. I don't know that there was a glowing um, feeling from anybody after hearing him say, yes, I'd be very happy if James came back. I mean, anybody can say that, but he certainly didn't make it seem like this is something that has to get done. I thought that he went on um, some pretty interesting, I don't want to say, um, hmm. Uh, it was kind of a breath of fresh air, I guess, to listen to him. He was very thoughtful, I thought, about how he answered some of the questions in terms of the game. You know, we had a question about smaller guards and how being um, how impactful they can be on defense, right? You can hear that he has a lot of deep thoughts. You know, he's been kind of described as this outside-the-box thinker. There was the question regarding what Fred Van Vliet said about him, that he was kind of like a, you know an unusual guy, and they kind of laughed. But, you know, you, you hear how thoughtful he was in his answer about the game, and his answer about small guards being impactful on defense was very insightful on, on some of the things, that, how he valued that. He did mention getting Tyrese Maxey, more Rex... Uh, more reps in like the pick and roll. He feels like there is still more layers to what Maxi's game could end up being. And he kind of was glowing about, hey, when we were in Toronto, we tried to push him away from the basket and he would do that little floater. We tried to push him out a little bit further and he floated one from there. And we you know the further we try to push him out, the more he ended up doing. But that being said, he said, I think that there are more uh, tools in Maxi's game. So overall, you take a look at that press conference today, and I say the ownership group and Daryl Morey are a big reason why Nick Nurse is here. One. Two, continuity on the floor was something that he kind of liked. The James Harden stuff, he was asked and pressed on. I'd be very happy if he came back. He said, I'm not sure that I'm buying it all that much. Um. I would also add that when you look at what Nurse said today, he was asked multiple times, and he even said it. He kind of laughed at it, like, hey, you've asked me about the second round multiple times. Well, Nick, yeah, this team hasn't gotten out of the second round here. But he was asked about what this team is missing. Why haven't they been able to get out of the second round? And I'm not sure he really gave an answer that hits with anybody. It did hit with me, and he did say this. This team could be playing tonight. It's a bounce here. It's a something there. So Nick Nurse and I think a lot of people look at the Philadelphia 76ers as a team that is good enough to get to a championship. The ball just hasn't bounced their way yet. It bounced away for Toronto. It went up. It hit around. It bounced up again. You know, I was watching that Sixers documentary last night. The Sixers went to the finals. They didn't win an NBA finals, but they got out of the second round in part because when Vince Carter took that last shot, it bounced high off the rim. We almost forget. It bounced high off the rim, and it went out. It didn't bounce off the rim, go up, 
come back down and through the net. It did not go in. The ball simply didn't bounce Toronto's way. They were good enough that year. But the ball didn't bounce their way. And Nick Nurse saying the Sixers are good enough. The ball just hasn't bounced their way. I'll give you a couple more takeaways, some thoughts on the Nick Nurse press conference coming up on the other side because there are one, two, three, four, five. I got about five or six other things that kind of are in my notes that I jotted down from the conversation. But those were really the five things that stood out the most. There's a couple other things. Stick around. We got football at four as well. The Eagles on the field today. We got sound of the day. Jim Lineham tonight at 530. Phillies lose 4-2. Uh, Drew Ellis popped up to center field to end the game. Yeah, you never heard of Drew Ellis, I know. Uh, Alec Bohm was on the injured list. Ellis took his spot on the roster today. And he pinch hit for somebody. I don't even know who. And popped up. I guess he pinch hit for somebody who bats left-handed. Drew Ellis is a right-handed hitter. More sports bash coming up. Phillies swept today by the Mets. Nick Nurse press conference. NBA finals tonight. We'll preview that a little bit later on in the show. Stick around. Now, Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN, South Jersey Sports Leader. All right, 3.52, Sports Bash, 97.3 ESPN. Mike Gill with you till 6 o'clock tonight. You just heard from Nick Nurse. A couple other things that really stood out. I, I, you know, I like listening to Nick. Nick was my choice to be the guy, to be the head coach. He was the guy I said, look, if you're going to hire somebody, he would be the guy that I would have uh, targeted. Um, I definitely see him as an outside-the-box stinker. He gets these questions, and I feel like he's just kind of, listen, the guy was in Toronto. I don't know how many media members are covering the Toronto Raptors there. He probably was overwhelmed by the amount of questions that were being asked of him. But you definitely heard him there, see him coach, and look at two different guys. I mean, he is an outside-the-box stinker, and his answers are, I think sincere. He's taking your question in and he is really trying to give you the best possible answer. He has a championship pedigree. That's number one. And when you listen to him in a championship pedigree, you understand a little bit better that there is no one way to do it. And sometimes, as I said before, you need the ball to bounce your way. There is a plan for him on how to get more out of Joel Embiid. I think that was pretty indicative of what he was talking about today. That he he said he talked about, if you see how he runs his big men, because he was asked about Jokic and the way he facilitates, and he said he thinks Joel can be a better facilitator and that that's something that he can help him improve on. He also talked about Maxi and taking a big leap with Tyrese Maxi, And I think that is going... Those two answers there should really be the thing that you circle and say, hey, if he can get these two things to be accurate, better Embiid or different Embiid or more from Embiid, whatever you want to say about Joel Embiid, great. Maxi, on the other hand, it is almost imperative. The question was formed in a good way that he seems to be the one in-house guy that you need to get more from, like that you have that can be a different player from the one this year and take a big jump. He agreed with that. And those are some of the things from Nick Nurse. No, with Nurse, he was asked about his experience with the load management stuff. And I think he said 
hey, we created a, like, they mentioned like a long-term plan for Kawhi that he thinks could work with Joel Embiid. And we'll see. Could that mean that we don't see Joel Embiid as much in the regular season? It could be a possibility where Nick Nurse is on board with the load management and getting him, you know, less regular season nights and being more available for the playoffs. Coming up, football at fours on the way. Andrew DiCecco will chime in with us here on the Sports Bash as the Eagles are back at OTAs. What is Andrew watching? What is he looking for? And I also want to get thought, DeAndre Hopkins, by the way. Everybody's talking about Hopkins. You know, Hopkins had mentioned Philadelphia. Would DeAndre Hopkins actually be a fit in Philadelphia? Plus, which Eagles are under the microscope? Andrew DeCecco joins us coming up on the other side here on the Sports Bass Live on 97.3 ESPN. The 97.3 ESPN free mobile app, the mobile app powered by First Bank of CI. We'll talk to Andrew coming up next on the Sports Bash for Football at 4 on 97.3 ESPN. ESPN presents the Sports Bash with Mike Gill. It's time for Football at Four with 97.3 ESPN.com's Andrew DeCecco. My first allegiance is what will be best for the Philadelphia Eagles and our fans for the next three, four, five years. Powered by the Inside the Birds podcast. Now, live from inside the Matt Black Kia Studios. It's football at four. Football at four powered by the Inside the Birds podcast. And, of course, Eagles OTAs continuing at the NovaCare Complex. And Andrew DeCecco is here for a little football at four as we discuss a little further what's going on with the Birds, some possibilities moving forward. Who are some guys he's taking a look at? He is a part of the show right now on the Sports Bash Live on 97.3 ESPN for another edition of football at four, Andrew DeCecco. What's up, my brother? Mike Gill, it's been a minute. How are you, man? It has been a minute, man. I was uh, off last week. I missed you, but OTAs are back. We got guys flying around the football. For you, Andrew, what do OTAs mean for you? I know you're a guy uh, who likes to watch the roster construction. You like the whole draft process, and you like those under-the-radar guys. So what do you get from uh, following these OTAs? Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at you know different players like an Alameda Zacchaeus coming in from uh, from from the outside, really vying for a spot as the number three receiver on this team. It comes down to verbiage, Mike. It's going to come down. Obviously, you're not going to do a lot of physical stuff here in OTAs, but it's going to come down to verbiage, getting familiar with uh, wide receivers coach Aaron Moorhead and what he's asking and something and and, and you know things like that. I think uh, I want to see what Jordan Davis looks like. Is he coming in in shape and what is he going to what's he going to look like what's his conditioning like um you, you want to see what a corner like uh what a james bradbury is looking like in his second year in the system is he you know he's a year older now is he going to look as just as fluid as he was last year there's a lot of things that you want to see here that you can sort of tell by by their body movements and, and things like that but a lot of it comes down to mental processing and really learning the learning the system and finding your footing this this late in the uh, in the off season yeah, uh, a lot of the younger players, I think this is something that, you know, they 
it's their first introduction, really, right, Andrew, to being a professional, getting into that routine. We're finding out what the routine is about to be like, right? I mean, so this is an opportunity. But you got two new coordinators here, and I'm a little surprised that the Eagles only do six of these, that they don't take full advantage. Why do you think the Eagles don't see the full advantage? You know, are you surprised uh, that they said, you know what, you can do 13, but we're not going to use all 13? I'm not really surprised, Mike, to be honest with you. I think the Eagles have different methods in which to, you know, sort of uh, implement their plays and get guys on the same page. I think that they've been very progressive, uh, you know, historically in how they're able to get everybody, you know, on the same page as far as what they're doing. I think that, you know, that you might see them see the value in a, in a Zoom in Zoom calls and, and things like that. But, I mean, there really is not a lot to glean from OTAs. So I think that they find ways to get their message across and, and learn the mental aspect of what they're asking in, in different methods. Andrew Checo, Football 4. You wrote about a couple guys uh, over at InsideTheBirds.com, and I'm interested to get some more. Uh, you know, Rashad Penny, obviously, he's a guy they signed this offseason. You got Swift here. These OTAs begin. Is this like a starting off point for competition, or do you not see this as where the competition begins for guys like Penny versus Swift? Well, I think, you know, if healthy, DeAndre Swift's going to be the bell cow running back. And and I say bell cow loosely because the Eagles really don't operate that way. I think you're going to see uh, a combination of running backs, including Kenny Gainwell. But I, I mentioned him as a guy, Rashad Penny, that is, as someone who's under the microscope because he does come with an extensive injury history. He's missed th- uh, 37 games in four seasons, which I don't think can be understated. But when he has been healthy, he's been remarkably productive. And I think he provides an element that you're not going to find elsewhere on the running back depth chart. So I think that he's under the microscope because you need to see him healthy because if he's not in the mix, Mike, if he's not available or he's injured, then all of a sudden you miss that power element, that 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 different body type that can provide those short yardage and, and, and really accelerate and take – he's not limited to just short yardage. I mean, he does have some burst to his game. Yeah. But if you take him out of the equation, you see a lot of running backs that have similar dimensions – and they become really one-dimensional in that regard. Yeah, Penny's a guy that I know you have an eye on here uh, as a compliment to DeAndre Strift. I know last year we would talk a lot about Watkins. You're a guy who you know had high hopes for Watkins and thought he could have been a guy on many weeks that, hey, he could break out. Uh, what is What are you looking at with Watkins for this season, starting with these OTAs here? You mentioned Zacchaeus before, so where do you see Watkins? Yeah, I'm glad you brought him up, Mike, because he's arguably number one on my list for players who are under the microscope. Because when he entered last season, we we can't forget that Nick Sirianni, you know, and, and you know, if you're taking what he's saying at face value, he said he has the potential, Quez Watkins, that is, to be the best number two, one of the better number two wide receivers that he's ever played with, the play or uh, ever coached. Now. I mean, I think he's totally miscast as a two, thought he was miscast as a three, as a slot. But there were plays for him to uh, to make last season that I, I thought that he really uh, he really took a step back in, in where they thought he was from a progression standpoint. He You know, he had a hand in as many as three losses last season. He had a prominent hand, I should say, uh, most notably Super Bowl 
uh, 57. So I think that he, and he said all the right things at locker room clean out. He vowed to improve on his shortcomings and you heard all the right things, but he now he needs to utilize those shortcomings and that, and that setback as fuel to move forward because now He's not going uncontested this year. There's a guy that they brought in, Zacchaeus, who I mentioned earlier, who's going to give him a run for his money at the number three spot. Yep. So he's going to have to see if he's willing to, you know, if he's willing to deliver it, to deliver on what he said as far as utilizing it, uh, those shortcomings as motivation to, to move forward. That said, uh, there has been some murmurs uh, about uh, DeAndre Hopkins. I don't know that the Eagles are receptive, but I think he was interested in possibly being here. Uh, he has no team yet. Uh, would he be a fit in Philadelphia? Well, I think DeAndre Hopkins would be a fit on any team, and I think 31 of 32 teams should have interest in DeAndre Hopkins. But when you're looking at the Eagles' offense as it's currently constructed, they struggle to find ways to manufacture touches for all of their you know, weapons, and they do have many of them. So trying to shoehorn, for lack of a better term, DeAndre Hopkins into their offense, I don't know how that would fit. I mean, there's hardly enough touches as it is to get someone like a De- uh, Devontae Smith touches. I thought he you know, deserved even more than he got last season. And Dallas Goddard, let's not forget, is... You know, every, everyone wonders when he's going to turn the corner. And I think that people forget that he's the top three tight end in this league because there's just not the opportunities because there's so many different guys that they're trying to facilitate the football to. So adding DeAndre Hopkins to the mix, I think, would be uh, a little bit problematic for, for, you know, for DeAndre Hopkins from a fit standpoint. I think any team would want him, but it's it's he, I assume that at this stage of his career, he's going to want a prominent role still. Yeah, I, I... I would, you know, it was all, uh, I, I was on uh, Birds 365. Even, I don't know what day of the week it is today anymore. I was on yesterday, and they asked me about Hopkins, and I said, you know, I, I, it sounds great in theory, but where is he playing? I mean, how many – plus you got Goddard in the mix. You got Swift in the mix. I mean, there, I just don't see uh, – on the surface, hearing his name sounds really – you know, yeah, that would be awesome. I just don't know where he fits into this offense. So, to me – and we got a question from a listener that says uh, – the Eagles signing Hopkins for 13-5 or giving up, say, a four for Buda Baker and taking on his $13 million contract, which would I prefer? I like Hopkins, the player, but I would think Buda Baker is definitely more of what this team needs right now than DeAndre Hopkins. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I will say this. You look past the top three receivers, even the top four. Let's take Zacchaeus and, and Watkins out of the equation. Who, who steps in in a, in a pinch? Should Devontae Smith or A.J. Brown have to miss time or even just simply need a blow? Yes. Who can they step? Who can they plug in on the outside to, you know, you know, that's playable that can give you productive snaps? I think that's a problem area, but also. You know, you're not going to see someone like DeAndre Hopkins want to be a role player like that. I think he still has, at least in his eyes and in my eyes, too, for what it's worth, that I think he's a starting player and he's certainly not going to get starting snaps or uh, targets, you know, not in Philadelphia. Yeah, no, you're right about that. And that's a good point is, you know, if one of the starting receivers missed any time, what kind of depth do they have at wide receiver? Quez Watkins, Zacchaeus, are those guys? Now, I think Watkins can move to the outside. He you think he's better served as an outside guy than that third slot guy? Yeah, I think Watkins was totally miscast as a slot last season. I think his he's best suited to be an outside receiver. Now, is he good enough? That's the question. Is he good enough to be an outside receiver that you can step that you can count on to step in there and provide you know, quality snaps in the event that you, you're missing one of your top two receivers. I, I don't know that. We need to see if that setback was a sign of things to come or if that was just 
a bump in the road and he's able to kind of revert and get back on course here. This training camp is going to be really telling because if Watkins doesn't have the training camp that, that the Eagles are expecting, because let's not forget Nick Sirianni, at least he's been very vocal in his support for Quez Watkins. If he's not what they think, then all of a sudden you have a major problem there because the next two receivers are Zacchaeus and Britton Covey, respectively, who are both 5'8", and then you have to look possibly outside the uh, the organization to acquire a receiver that you can count on. So I think Quez Watkins is, is directly under the microscope for many reasons this summer. Yeah, uh, and again, you can't just bring in DeAndre Hopkins and say, hey, you're here for break glass in case of emergency. And quite frankly, if you had Hopkins and A.J. Brown and uh, Devonta Smith, which one of those guys is your slot, right? I mean, it, it doesn't seem that there's a fit. Yeah, exactly. So it, it, you can you can stack a roster full of great players, but you have to make sure that it accentuates what they're good at and their skill sets. It doesn't make sense to have a field a, a dream team roster if you don't necessarily have them in the best position to be successful. So while it sounds good in theory to have a DeAndre Hopkins on your team, yeah, who plays the slot? You know what I mean? Right, exactly. No, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, we're talking with Andrew Checo, football at four from InsideTheBirds.com. Eagles OTAs, I guess a big story is going to be Jordan Davis, and I know he's a guy that you put under your microscope. Uh, how are they going to use Jordan Davis? Who's going to be playing next to him? I think it's going to be a big storyline moving forward. Yeah, great question. So we want to see how – so one of the things you can glean from OTAs is – what kind of shape does he look like he's in? Uh, you know, does he look a little bit more, uh, more trim and more fit than he did last season? Is he able? To, does he have a little bit more burst? Right. I mean, right now, our our impression of Jordan Davis is that he's a one dimensional player that doesn't provide much in terms of pass rush. So. I mean, that's obviously really risky for taking a player. I think they took him 13 overall in the NFL draft a couple last season. So you, you obviously don't take him envisioning somebody that's a one-dimensional run-defending defensive tackle. So you want to see if he really developed certain aspects of his game. And obviously they didn't draft him to be a backup, so you're going to see him assume more of the lion's share of the snaps. But the question becomes, who does he play opposite? And to me, I think that that would be – uh, sort of a combination between Jalen Carter and Fletcher Cox. And I say combination because you don't necessarily want to throw too much at Jalen Carter right off the bat, knowing that he's a rookie, and sometimes you might need to, a little bit of an acclimation period. But it's that's why the, the signing of Fletcher Cox was so instrumental and vital because it alleviates some of the pressure from a rookie having to be thrown to the you know, thrown in the proverbial fire. Yeah, uh, that one to me is interesting. What are you hearing so far? Uh, about Jalen Carter and, and, and you know, uh, what he, you talk about what kind of shape these guys are in. What have you heard so far about Jalen Carter? Powerful player, someone that, that has stepped in and really done everything, you know, everything right so far. And again, yeah, I say so far because we have a long way to go here, but I think that right now you have every reason to be encouraged with what you've seen from Jalen Carter if you're the Eagles. And I mean, I have such high hopes for for Jalen Carter. He was my top-rated player coming into the draft, and just I think that he's going to be someone that you can plug in there and, and know that you're going to get early production from. But again, you don't want to necessarily throw him out there for 70, 75% of the snap, 72%. Uh, in the early going, I think that's why it's vital to have somebody like Fletcher Cox to mentor him and, and sort of 
take on some of those snaps while he gets acclimated. But I do think that Jalen Carter is going to be uh, really coming to the forefront there as the top defensive tackle on this team sooner than later. Two more guys under Andrew DeCecco's microscope for these OTAs in this season. Let's look at Nicobe Dean because uh, it was reported today at OTAs that he already is the play caller. So that would tell you they've got confidence in him right off the bat. And, they, you know, that they should because all signs point to and everything that I've gathered is that he's a really smart football player and approaches the game the right way. He's serious about what he does, He's a, and he picks things up quickly. He's a good, a good processor. But, you know, the, the Eagles are pr- placing an inordinate amount of pressure on somebody like the Kobe Dean because they don't have – a ton behind him to support him, right? And they're they're putting a lot of their eggs in his basket and hoping that he's going to be the bright young star that many, including myself, expect him to be. But I mean, the, it's not surprising because the player that I saw at Georgia and the player and everything that I saw, you know, is in brief sample size. He played 34 snaps last year, but the, what I saw last season is somebody who has an astute football IQ. And I think that he's going to help in terms of helping the defense in that second level in particular operate very cohesively. But he's a player that I have a lot of high hopes for. But, you know, the Eagles, I think, may perhaps unfairly are putting a lot on him right now in his second year. Uh, Andrew, let's go to uh, another interesting situation is that safety spot. You've got Terrell Edmonds as a player under your microscope because, you know, they brought him in here, I would imagine, to kind of be the leader of that uh, group. Yeah, and, you know, when you're getting Terrell Edmonds, you're getting a 26-year-old who's played in 79 games and 75 starts. So on the surface, that's great value. But I think that it can go either way. I think that he could be a player that, does well enough in training camp where you go into him, you go into the season with him as the uh, the one year placeholder until someone else is willing to take over, or he could be a player that doesn't make the team because I don't know that he would serve a purpose as a number three safety or a special teamer, right? Like an Anthony Harris, I, I don't think that 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 would be a good fit. But right now he's under the microscope because he's the veteran in that room and he's going to help. You know, Sidney Brown acclimate to the NFL level. He's going to help Reed Blankenship continue to build upon what he really started last season. And I have, you know, a, a high hopes for him. I think that he's going to be a player. But I, I view Reed more as a number three safety. I think he can get a little bit exploited as the number two. But I, I think that Edmonds, being that veteran in that room that's played a lot of football, he's logged a ton of snaps and seen everything. He's going to be vital in, in the progression of the younger players who I mentioned. So, um, there, again, when you don't have a lot of experience to draw from, he becomes someone that's directly under the microscope because if you don't have him, I mean, you you have a lot of question marks there. All right, Andrew DeCecco, Football at Four. Check out his stuff over at InsideTheBirds.com as OTAs continue this week and then into next week. The Eagles only electing to do six of these. Um, most teams, you're allowed up to 13 in the offseason. So the Eagles are on the low end of these organized team activities. And, you know, one thing I, I would imagine, they're doing a lot of classroom work, not, you're, you know, 13 on-field activities. You can work in the classroom and do whiteboard and video and, and scouting and film and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but two new coordinators, I think that is something big to keep in mind uh, for the Eagles this offseason. He's Andrew DeCecco. This is Football at Four on the Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. All right, man, I'll talk to you next week, buddy. 
Have a good one, Mike. All right, Andrew DeCecco, always informative. Great stuff. His writing over at InsideTheBirds.com. He's got uh, Eagles under the microscope in 2023. We just went over a list of some of the guys. And, of course, tomorrow on the show, it's a happy hour Friday. Tomorrow on the Sports Bash, it's my first Friday since Memorial Day. I missed happy hour Friday last week. And I'm going to be on the road tomorrow. At the 40th Annual Ranch Hope Golf Classic, I am honored to be asked to be here to do my show at the Centerton Golf Club out in Pittsgrove, New Jersey. I will be out there for the 40th Annual Ranch Hope Golf Classic, and we'll have more details tomorrow on the entire event. But Ranch Hope is a fantastic organization, and I'm honored that they asked the Sports Bash to be on hand, and we will be out there live tomorrow for the Sports Bash on a happy hour Friday, and we've got a great happy hour Friday prize to give away tomorrow, so you want to be tuned in for that. When we come back, we got Sound of the Day. I do want to get some quick Phillies thoughts who lost today. I'm going to say this about the Phillies. I'm not in panic mode, and I think the Phillies will be fine, and they'll make the playoffs. These injuries are starting to mount. Uh, that's not good. Alec Bohm put on the injured list today. I will say this. They've got Washington this weekend, Detroit next week, and then it gets a little difficult. L.A., Arizona, and then you got Oakland for three. Oakland might be the worst team in the history of baseball. Atlanta, New York. I'm talking about up to the All-Star break here. They have got to win these games against Washington and Detroit. You have got to keep yourself around 500 and afloat before I start to say, all right, I'm going to start flipping over to the other side. I'm not in panic mode right now. They're 25 and 31. They certainly can get on a little 7-8 game you know, streak here or there. But these are the games you got to start building those streaks up. Washington, Wheeler's pitching tomorrow. I think I'm pitching on Saturday. They do not have a scheduled starter for that game. Suarez is pitching on Sunday. They've got to get Wheeler and Suarez. You've got to win those games. Nola against Detroit, have to. Walker against Detroit, have to. Wheeler against Detroit, have to. You have the pitching matchups in the next six. Well, really five, because I don't know who's pitching Saturday. But you got to get those. And if you can get five out of those six... You're right around 500 again. More Sports Bash coming up. Sound of the day includes our conversation with David Sampson. You want to hear from Sampson? You will next on the Sports Bash Live on 97.3 ESPN. Now. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. On 97.3 ESPN. 428 on the Sports Bash. You heard the uh, Phil swept in New York. I'm not going to hit the panic button just yet. 25 and 31. And part of the reason is this. I'm not here trying to tell you 
the Phillies are a good baseball team. Right now, today, they are not. But they don't exist in a vacuum. A lot of teams around them are also not very good baseball teams. They're three and a half games back of the wild card. They trail a team like Pittsburgh, who jumped out to a great record, and Pittsburgh is now one game over 500. They are the third team in the wild card race. The Cincinnati Reds are ahead of them in the wild card race. There's a lot of reasons why I think the Phillies are still kind of not ready to hit the panic button for me. That said, they're not playing very good baseball right now. You hope that they're getting their bad baseball out now. Injuries, missing guys. They got to start getting this thing in the right direction. I might change my tune around 4th of July. We'll see where they are in a couple weeks. They got a couple series here that I think are pretty winnable. Washington and Detroit. Uh, Washington is 24 and 32, worse than the Phillies. Detroit is 26 and 28. They're actually better than the Phillies, but you got to beat Detroit. And if you don't, then I'll start to probably change uh, my tune a little bit. But as of right now, put me in the not panic button aisle of the grocery store. Well, speaking of the Phillies, we had a executive's perspective on baseball and sports in general yesterday on the Sports Bash. Former Marlins executive David Sampson was on. I wanted to run back some of the comments he made for those who may not have heard him in full yesterday on the Phillies' current situation. This was David Sampson yesterday on the Sports Bash. What you saw happen with Philadelphia last year, that's very hard to repeat. And so when I say it's getting late early, what I mean to say is that there are teams who can recover from being under 500 around Memorial Day, but the majority of time you don't. And so the concern is expanded playoffs. It gives you that false feeling. The reason why I love expanded playoffs is that I want more teams to be in the race longer because it's better for fans. But the downside of expanded playoffs is players and managers and sometimes even GMs say to me, hey, we're good. It's we're fine. We're going to be able to turn it on. Don't you worry. But the majority of the time, it doesn't work that way. It's really hard in baseball to do it. So I do have a level of concern over Philadelphia, though not to the point where I would think of firing Rob Thompson. Um, And obviously, he's disagreeing with what I'm saying. But he's kind of saying what I'm saying, but disagreeing with it at the same time. Because there's three playoff berths that a lot of these teams, and maybe someone like me, says, look, there's three playoff spots you're right in the mix for one of them right now. And he's saying it's a good thing, but it's also a bad thing because you're telling yourselves, we're going to turn it around. We're going to turn it around. We're going to turn it around. And to do what you did last year, which was turn it around, is not always easy. I will say this. I agree with what he's saying to some extent. The only reason I differ this particular season is the whole league is bad. I mean, the National League is dreadful. The second best team in the National League right now is three games over 500. The Mets. Actually, no, I take that back. The wild card. The the second best wild card team. The second best team in the National League uh, currently, you've got right now the... Um, we have the Braves and the Dodgers. They're the top two dogs right now in the National League. Yeah, and the Dodgers are 11 games up over 500. They're 34 and 23. So they're hardly the dominant Dodgers that they've been. 
and the Braves, who you just split a series with, are 10 games over 500. And then the Braves went and lost two games to the A's. So it's kind of like a roller. It's Every team's on a roller coaster ride right now. The, Ma- the National League is so bad. It's an inferior league compared to the American League this year. There's Easily. not even, well, and I will say this though. You might say it's an inferior league to the American League, and I'm not arguing that. The American League has the two worst teams in all of baseball. They've right. got the Oakland A's, who are going to be historically maybe the worst team of all time. But basically, and the Kansas City Royals. It, every team in the American League East, and almost every team not named the A's in the American League West, could beat any team in the National League right now. Yeah, in the a, entire in a AL East is over 500. Boston is in last place at 28 and 27. And in the West, Seattle is in fourth place right now at 29 and 27. But again, you're not even up against that. In- yeah. But that's why you have a chance. And it's interesting when Samson says, listen, having these extra wild card spots creates a new environment for people who they have a little more hope. They have a little more faith and belief and his, that maybe we can turn it around. His point is you can't keep using that as a crutch, as, hey, we're going to turn. You can't say it every year. You do it once, okay. Every year you can't keep digging yourself the hole and then comparing yourself to last year. I totally get that. The difference for me is this. The league is really bad. The yeah, league it- is really bad. Like I said, you got Atlanta in first place. They are three and a half games up on the Mets. The Mets are are thirty and twenty seven. I mean, you're three games over five hundred. They are the 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 second wild card right now. The Mets had a worse start to the season than the Phillies did, and so but they found a way to get themselves out of their rut. You know, they started getting healthy again. Pete Alonso started erupting. I mean, right now most people will believe that. It's either Acuna or Alonzo for NL MVP. Well, think about this. At one time this year, not too long ago, uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates were 10 games over 500. 10. They were 20 and 10. They were 10 games. Actually, at one point, they were 11 games over 500. They were 20 and 9. Um, and now they're 28 and 27. Not so good. So. Look, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to say you guys are wrong about thinking this team is not very good. I can see that they're not playing good baseball. But I also think they have enough talent that can turn it around, the Turners, the Schwarbers. But if they don't turn it around, there's going to be major questions on what happened with Turner. Major questions as to why is, you know, my buddy just texted me. We're literally having this conversation, and I got a text message. Why is Schwarber hitting 160? I don't know why he's hitting 160. He strikes out a lot. I think he's hurt. I, I, I really think that Schwarber uh, has something, you know, there, there's a, a physical ailment because while he's not a high average hitter, 160 is unplayable. It's unplayable. Can't play a guy hitting 160. I'm sorry. You know, but the problem is they don't have another option. And if you look at this team, Boehm is on the injured list now. They don't have anybody to get the ball over the fence. I mean, him and Harper, and Harper really hasn't gotten going yet. Uh, Even Turner, when Turner's really going, he's not really a home run hitter. I mean, Turner's like an 18 to 20 home run guy. Yeah, Turner's a guy who hits for high average, gets on base, you know, gets you some RBIs here and there. I mean, that's more his game. He's a stolen base guy. He's an on-base percentage guy. He's an average guy. He's a guy who creates havoc on the bases. You're not looking for him to hit 35 homers. So 
you have to have Schwarber in the lineup just to give you some sort of, but at 160, you're starting to become unplayable. My working assumption, and I don't have any special insights, but my working assumption about Schwarber is if more guys were healthy and available, he might have already been put on the injured list. That's my working assumption. Like, if Bohm well, was on Jake the IL, Cave, They do have Jake Cave, who is performing pretty well at AAA. You could have called him up at any point before Bohm has gotten hurt. That is if true. If you needed to rest Schwarber for 10 days, Cave went down to the minors. I think he's hitting over 400. Yeah, he's ripping the whole... So uh, I don't agree with that whole, you know, with what you're saying is they do have a it was guy. Just, it was just a theory. My, my, I was just wondering. Well, I'm debunking your theory. I'm That's doing, fine. I'm debunking That's the fine. theory. Is Jake <laughs> Cave went down to the minors. Now, I'm not telling you he's going to come up here and hit 400. But my point is you had a guy that went down there and actually started to hit the baseball. You might have looked at that and said, you know what? Why this guy's hitting right now, maybe we bring him up and let Schwarber take 10 days off. Well, maybe that opens up the next point, because one of the conversations you guys were having yesterday was about... You like Samson? Should I get him on more? I think you should do him once a week. That's what I think. Really? That's my personal opinion. Um, maybe someone out there could, uh, you know... I got a lot of feedback on Samson. Yeah. People seem to really like his insight. So one Not of, everybody. I mean, he's not for everybody. No, but he he's an important perspective because as he explains in this next part of Sound of the Day, the part of the reason why when we have these conversations about the Phillies, we have to stop hyper-focusing on the manager is because of this specific outline by Samson of how the game day, what you see during the game, Everything that happens during the game is handled, discussed, and dealt with before the manager even hands in the lineup card before first pitch. Take a listen. I promise you that the front office is involved and goes through pre-game what the plan is and how it's going to work. We're with the manager before BP, after BP, right until the manager takes the field for the anthem. Then we're back in the manager's office after the game where we'll talk through what went on during the game that may not have been what we planned for, or maybe the decision was made that was different than what we had spoken about. Or we'll talk about evaluating players who are not executing the way we need them to and talk about whether they need a rest or whether they need to be sent down. We'll talk to managers about all those things, but managers are the ones who really execute the plans that come from the front office. So there you go. So many people want to blame the manager. So many people want to take shots at the manager. Here is Dave Sampson, a former team executive, team president, by the way, um, of the Miami Marlins who won a World Series, basically saying, no, that's not how it works. The lineup is given to the manager. They all sit down. They say, here's your lineup today. And I've said this over the years. A lot of fans don't want to listen to that. They well, don't, don't want to accept yeah. that that's the way it is because it wasn't always that way. That's no, not how it always was. But the other part of what he said is everything. He says, you know, who plays, who doesn't play, you know, what, who you bring in from the bullpen. All these things are discussed before the game. Well, the part that he brought up, he said, we sit down before the game, and if the starting pitcher can't get out of the first inning, we have a guy that he's supposed to go to. Right. If he can't get out of the fourth inning because he ends up getting hurt, let's say he 
the plan was for him to go six innings, mm-hmm. and he can't get out of the six because he got hurt in the third. Right. We have a guy ready to do who's going to go in the third inning in case he gets hurt. Correct. They have it mapped out in every angle, and his explanation about a shoe player and a spike player. A shoe player means you have the day off. You're not playing today at all, no matter what. Right. A spike player is, hey, you might not play today, start, but get your spikes on because you could pinch hit. So people were asking, why wasn't Bryce Harper in the lineup the other day? He was a shoe player. You are not hitting. You're not pinch hitting. He said, because if you have to pinch hit, your mindset is different if you have your sneakers on as opposed to if you have your spikes on. And sometimes it's important for guys to disconnect. So... So when it comes to some of these decisions, you know, who you bring in from the bullpen, you know, my gripes with Gregory Soto, right? Well, why are they bringing in Gregory Soto? Well, they're bringing in Gregory Soto because this was the game plan discussed with the front office and the manager before they ever got to the dugout. Well, and he mentioned it in the conversation we had yesterday, um, which was, hey, sometimes you might say if the team has the top of their order up in the seventh, we want you to use so-and-so in that situation. As opposed to waiting for the closer in the ninth inning, right. use him in the seventh. And there's another side of this I think is very important. That I think that, you know, we heard Nick Nurse a- about an hour ago here on 97.3 ESPN. And when people ask the question about Rob Thompson, I think this part of the explanation from Samson about the relationship between the front office and the coach and what happens on the field or on the court. I think this is something that people need to keep in mind. This is, again, David Sampson yesterday on the Sports Bash. We will have discussed pregame. Here's what we're doing. We don't want that pitcher, say it's anybody, say it's Zach Wheeler. We don't want him going five innings if he throws 45 or more pitches in any inning early in the game. So literally to that level of detail, we're going to talk it through. And if there's a time where there's a mutiny, where the manager does something that we did not pre-approve or that we don't understand why he did it, that becomes a data point in our evaluation of that manager in terms of during game. Even use of the bullpen, we've gone through and mapped out who we want ideally in the 7th, 8th, ninth. who we want in the 7th if it's Maybe our closer, because if you're in a certain part of the lineup because of how the game goes, then we want the closer used in the seventh or eighth. All of that is discussed pregame. It's all done not just with analytics but with discussion. And if managers don't follow through on that plan, then you get a problem. It's an unbelievable perspective that we got here on the show. David Sampson, the former uh, team president of the Miami Marlins. How many people out there are listening to that and changing your opinion of the manager? A lot of people. Rob Thompson's horrible. Rob Thompson has to go. You just heard from a team president that kind of laughed at that notion. These guys don't have anything to do with it. In fact, he says if Rob Thompson goes off the script, He's he's in trouble. He's in trouble. Right. So if you got a problem with Rob Thompson, what you're really saying is you have a problem with Dave Dombrowski and Sam Fold. That's what you're really saying, because it sounds to me more and more, Mike, you know, we heard Nick Nurse and Daryl Moore talk about the relationship between the coach and the front office. We heard Dave Samson talk yesterday about the how he just said, you know, it's a data point. If the manager goes off the script that the front office is setting up, 
you literally now in professional sports, in sports like basketball and hockey and baseball, and even football to an extent, if you are not in step with the front office, you don't have a job. Yeah, and I'm wondering, you mentioned Sam Fold. I don't know that too many people know who that is. I don't think Dave Dombrowski is so much writing out lineups. I think Dombrowski does what he does. He puts the roster together. Mm-hmm. I think Fold might be the guy who's putting the roster, the lineups. Because Fold, if you remember, came from where? Tampa. He is the more analytical guy. Correct. So you have the blend of the old school GM putting the roster together, and you have the analytical guy in Sam Fold, who is technically the GM of the team. So I think Fold is the guy who really puts the lineups together. And you could argue, and listen, I don't know this in a literal certainty, but you look at the role that Fold has with the Phillies. It's a little similar to Elton Brand with the Sixers in that they're kind of the unseen guy because Dombrowski and Maury go to the media and they're kind of like the spokesman for the front office. Yeah. But in many ways, Brand and Fold are doing some of the legwork the executive, the main executive, Maury and Dombrowski, can handle jamokes like us. I just wonder how many people listening today are opening their eyes like, wow, that's pretty unbelievable to hear from a former team executive. You know, one of the things, if you listen to Samson's podcast, and I listen to it almost every single day. I love it. It's called Nothing Personal. And he calls it that, Nothing Personal, because he's saying, it's nothing personal. It's just business. I'm exposing all of these business things that happen in sports. People blame the manager. And he said, I got sick and tired of hearing fans blame the manager. It's not the manager's fault. Blame me. I'm the executive. We're the ones telling these managers how to do things. How many people listening to the show right now listened to David Sampson and said, that's an interesting perspective. I think a lot of people out there driving right now, I hope anyway, if you're the guy that's in your car that always yells about Rob Thompson, the manager, or even the basketball coach, because he said the same thing about the basketball coach. His point about the basketball coach really was there's really one guy who can make an impact to the level of making an impact, and that's a guy like Spolstra. If you don't have Spolstra, you just have another guy who's not making the impact you think he's making. His point about the baseball manager is the front office makes the decisions, the manager. And he said, look, I don't want to call them a figurehead. I don't want to insult them to that extent. But if they don't carry out what is told for them to do, we are now evaluating their ability to take orders, essentially. But it gets back to the job of these guys, whether they succeed or fail, comes back to what they do before the game starts, the preparation, the game planning. Now, Robin Millville, yeah. by the way, asked this question. Mm-hmm. He said, Mike, do all the teams operate that way? I asked Samson that very question. I said, is that the way the Marlins did it? Or is that the way? And he didn't even let me get the question out. He said, everybody. Yeah, he said everybody. Everybody operates this and way. And frankly, almost all sports operate on this on some level, where the front office has an explicit and involvement in what happens on game day. I remember, and I talked about this yesterday when Samson was on in the 5 o'clock hour, so after that, we used to have Seth Everett on who covered baseball for NBC Sports. And he told me the same story. He said, look, these teams nowadays, they don't write the lineup. The, The GM generally does. They are the guys who put the lineup together. And at that point, I kind of opened my eyes to it and said, well, well, I guess we're blaming the manager for things that the manager really isn't doing. You know, my buddy said, look, the Phillies are terrible, blah, blah, blah. I can't watch his team. 
And the manager, he then said, well, the manager just said this. I said, so what do you want to do, fire the manager again? The manager just got fired. They just fired Joe Girardi. You're going to fire Rob Thompson now? You just heard what this guy said. He said, it's not the manager. Now, why would they fire Joe Girardi? Because apparently the data points, he was going off the script. Right. 448, more sports bash coming up. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. Got a couple text messages. Uh, Mike, that was definitely eye-opening. Robin Millville. Eyes open. Personally, I would rather see another manager still. Now, if that's the case, why is that? I don't, I'm don't. i not saying it's your opinion if you want a new manager. But if you said eyes open, you would still rather see another manager. Why? Give me a reason. I, I'm totally cool with it. I just want to hear your reason. That's all. I'm not going to agree or disagree with you. I'm just interested to see why you would still rather see another manager. I'd hate a guy who helped lead you to the World Series. I'd hate to have that guy. You know, he's probably terrible. I feel like the person who says, hey, that was a great point you made, but I still want to fire the manager. It's the same person who says, you know, you made a great point about filling the blank politician, but I'm still going to vote for him. Yeah, I I, I mean, maybe people just don't like uh, Thompson's very laid back. He's very laid back. He did say today, and I'm wondering how people kind of took to this. I, I didn't hear this, so, so I'm kind of reading through some of the, the quotes. Um, quotes that he did mention today. He was asked about the slow start, and he said, you know, the last three National League champions all started like this. Which is true. It doesn't mean that it's a universal. Like, this is how it works versus how it doesn't work. So... But it's interesting that Thompson is taking the approach of, hey, it's a long season, basically. And people don't like that. I mean, people, mostly fans, are in the business of wanting to win every single day. Right? They want to win every single day. They don't care. They pay their money. They go to the ballpark. They don't care that these seasons are long. They don't care that, you know, the Washington Nationals won the World Series a couple of years ago. What was it, 2019? And what were they, like 15 games under 500 at oh, one they were point? The worst, one of the worst teams in all of baseball. They were in dead last place, uh, and they came back and won the, you know, won the World Series. So, I will just say this really quick. People love Herm Edwards, who played to win the game, but guess what? Herm Edwards never won a championship as a coach. And sadly, I hate to say this, I don't don't shoot the messenger here. They don't play to win the game every day. Not anymore. It's a sad reality of the society that we've now become. By the way, Cole says, I like Samson a lot. Not a lot of team executives bring the cold, hard truth to the media like he does. Absolutely. This is the Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN. Now, live inside the Matt Black Kia Studios, here's Mike Gill. NBA Finals tonight. Game one, 97.3 ESPN. Almost an afterthought. It seems like Nick Nurse introduced to the media today. 
Uh, I like Jimmy Butler over six and a half assists tonight. That's my uh, play for the day. You like that? I'm going to give you a uh, prop bet for the NBA Finals because I'm going to be making some moolah. And there's my bet. Jimmy Butler over six and a half assists is the bet. I think it's interesting. I would ask you, how do you feel about Butler scoring-wise in general in this series? Do you think they're going to lean heavily on him scoring, or do you think he's going to be able to shut down a bit? Uh, Denver's not a great defensive team, you know, but, uh, yeah, I think Butler will probably have some big games. That wouldn't be, you know, Aaron Gordon's a good defensive player. Uh, I, I This series is going to be interesting. I I don't know where you think uh, people out there in listening land, if you're interested in the series or not. I'm very interested in the series because of the Jokic thing. I want to see where Jokic kind of falls in this series in terms of what kind of impact he has. We talk about the big man. Um, I want to see Jokic dominate. And I know people don't want to see sometimes Jokic do well because, you know, the whole Embiid and Jokic thing. No, I want to see Jokic dominate this series because I think it will drive Embiid to be better. And that's one of the things I'm looking for here. But Jokic is a terrible defensive player. The problem is Miami doesn't have an offensive guy. You know, Bam Adebayo is more of an energy guy than he is an offensive player. Correct. And I think Jokic is going to eat his lunch. I mean, I don't think Bam Adebayo has a shot to defend uh, Nikola Jokic. So I'm interested to see what Spolster, who by you know many accounts is the great coach, and I'm not trying to dispute that, what will he do? against Jokic tonight to try to get him out of rhythm and have him not be as big of an impact in this series. I mean, look, they're going to have to do things differently from game to game to game, and that's where I think the coach has an impact. What does he do tonight? Okay, that didn't work. What do I do in the next game? Because quite frankly, I don't think that Miami has an answer for Jokic, and I don't think they ultimately have an answer for Murray. I think that's going to be a problem for them because – you take out Jokic, you're going to have to use multiple players. And if you do that, that means Murray's going to get looks. And I find that to be a tough proposition for Miami in this series. This is not like Boston, who did not have a does not have a big man scorer. Boston is a very perimeter-oriented team. They jack up a ton of threes. Denver different. I mean, Denver shoots a lot of threes, but not like Boston does. And they can score in the paint, and they have a player that can facilitate from all over the the court. I mean, Boston just does not have that, but nobody does. Nobody has a Jokic. So I I find it hard for me to find past the victory for Miami in this series outside of them just shooting the lights out continuously. And I don't know that that, they've just shot the lights out in these playoffs and I don't know that they can keep doing that. I mean, the Nuggets swept the finals against the, the Lakers, and the Heat had to go seven games. I know they've had a couple of days off. This is the eighth NBA Finals that a team that swept is going up against a team that went seven games. The team coming off the sweep is 5-2 and two in game one. The team coming off of the sweep are four and three in the series. So this is Nuggets night tonight. It should be anyway. The Nuggets have seven extra days of rest in the series. It's tied for the second largest ever in a final. So they are well rested. They're playing at home. The Heat had to play seven games. In terms of finals experience, though, Miami has the edge, 70 to 10. 
and 27 of those games are from Udonis Haslam, who obviously is not a factor, but they still have guys who have played in the finals. They were in the finals a couple of years ago. Ten games for Denver. Contavious Caldwell-Pope played six, and Jeff Green has played in four. Uh, Miami's got Haslam 27, and the next guy, 15, is Kevin Love, and he's not a big factor. So I think Butler and Hero and Lowry, Duncan Robinson, Bam Adebayo, they've got the rest. Teams like uh, Denver right now uh, who have the the experience, I mean, the the rest, and um, I just think they're the better team. I just think they're the better overall team in this series. I think Miami has shot the lights out, and I think that comes to an end. You know, I've asked the question to anyone I could rationalize asking the question to on the air and I'll throw it to you, Mike, here, because you mentioned about Jokic and Embiid. I've been asking a lot of people for the last couple of weeks this question. What can we learn from the Nuggets that the Sixers can take and apply to build around Joel Embiid? Um, it's a good question. And by the way, I want you to keep this in mind. I don't know what it means because I don't know how much value we have on the regular season. But you ask a question, what can we do? to watch about what the Nuggets do about Joel Embiid. Well, Nick Nurse talked a little bit about it today. He thinks he can get more from Embiid, mm-hmm. right? He thinks that he can teach Embiid to be a better facilitator and a better passer. So that's a positive. But Philadelphia played Denver twice this year. They beat them 126 to 119. Embiid had 47 points and 18 rebounds in that game. They also played them in Denver without Joel Embiid. They lost that game 116 to 111. So it was a close game. I think no Embiid, and if memory serves, there was no Harden in that game either. So they lost 116 111. But the one game that they did play at full strength, uh, the Sixers pretty much blew the doors off that team, and Embiid had 47 points. So. I guess to answer your question, let's go back to that box score from that night and see what happened. You know, Jokic had a solid game, 8 for 12 from the field, 24 points. It wasn't like he was terrible. Um, Michael Porter Jr. was 5 of 9 from three-point range for 20 points. And Jamal Murray had a decent game, 22 points. The rest of their team didn't do much. They got nothing from Gordon, um, nothing from Caldwell Pope. And the bench basically gave them Zippo. And in that game for the Sixers, you had a big night from Embiid, 47. Harden had 17. He hit three threes. Melton hit three threes. You had Niang hit four threes. I think the moral of the story is this. I don't know that Philadelphia has to do a whole heck of a lot differently other than you got to make shots on the game. As Nick Nurse said today, why can't the Sixers get out of the second round? And Nick Nurse said, that's a bounce here. It's a play there. I think we have talked ourselves into thinking the Sixers aren't good enough. They are good enough. They just haven't had the ball bounce their way. They beat Denver. And, I mean, it's not like this Denver team is a team that the Sixers are just, wow, (laughs) they're not close to that team. I think what Denver adds that Sixers don't have, you ask the question, they have more athleticism. Aaron Gordon is a very athletic forward. I mean, he's an athletic guy um, that I think, the like, 
Think about Aaron Gordon was in the dunk contest, right? Think about his athleticism and what he brings defensively, energy, and he can score the ball, not a great shooter, against Tobias Harris. Tobias Harris, just he lacks the athleticism. He can't put the ball on the floor. He's a good defender, not great. I think we've... You know, try to talk ourselves in that he has turned into this great defensive player. Why? Because his offense has dipped. I think the biggest difference is you got Jokic, whose basketball IQ usurps and beads dominance. And that's crazy to say. That's like saying you have Shaq against Tim Duncan, and you'd rather have Tim Duncan over Shaq. Tim Duncan does have more championships. And you would say, that sounds ridiculous. Like, Shaq was the most dominating player in the league. No one can stop him. Joel Embiid's the most dominant player in the league. No one can stop him. But Tim Duncan finds he's the craftiest player in the league. And in the end, maybe Duncan is the better player than Shaq, even though Shaq is the more dominant player, if that makes more sense. No, it does make sense because there's two things that I think that go along with that. One is it's the ability to know how to do something. Like, having the knowledge or the ability to do something is different than actually executing with that information and ability. There's a lot of people who are athletic. Not everyone can play professional sports. There are a lot of people who are knowledgeable, but not everyone knows how to take that knowledge and parlay into being successful. Well, I think the athleticism that the role players of Denver has is a difference. Aaron Gordon versus Tobias Harris. Michael Porter against, say, P.J. Tucker. And I value what P.J. Tucker brings to the table. I really do. He should be the guy coming off the bench, though, providing that. The Sixers have to start him. And that's a difference. When Michael Porter is really your third guy, Michael Porter's a stud. I mean, Michael Porter probably could have been the first pick in that draft had he not had that back problem. Yeah, that crazy injury situation. He is an unbelievable talent, but he's really the third guy on that team, and he's athletic. I mean, think of a Ben Simmons with his head on straight who wants to shoot. He wants to be more of an offensive player. But I say Ben Simmons is because Michael Porter is a six foot ten guy who could really be a point guard. He could really do anything if he really put his mind to it. He is that good. Uh, fortunately for Denver, unfortunately for Porter, well, not unfortunately for Porter. I think Porter went to a situation that was great for him. He was hurt, and he didn't. The team didn't need him to be the impactful player. I mean, it would have helped maybe them win a championship earlier if he was healthy. And Porter doesn't have to be the main guy on a team because I don't think with the injury situation that he came into this league with that he was equipped to be the main guy. So he turns into a team that has a Jokic and has Jamal Murray. You talk about what the Sixers lack. They don't have Murray. And Denver does. That's really the, like, Gordon is more athletic than Harris. Porter is significantly more athletic than P.J. Tucker. You got the Jokic versus Embiid. You got the power versus the the IQ guy. Then you got Murray up against, you know, Harden. 
Well, Murray is, uh, he's a shot maker. He's a scorer. Harden is a shot maker and a scorer, but inconsistent. Murray has more athleticism than Harden does right now. Harden is a guy who can't get to the, to the basket the same way that he used to. But Murray's a catch-and-shoot guy on the three. Harden is not a catch-and-shoot guy. He catches, and then the ball stays on the yo-yo string for 10 minutes. Way different than Murray is. And then, you know, you look at their bench, they've got more athleticism, more shot makers than the Sixers do off the bench. You look at a guy like Niang, he can make shots, but it's hard for him to create shots. And, it's and hard for him to get open because he's not athletic enough. And this whole conversation is, is exactly why I always I always have the complaint that we as sports fans were told to value the wrong thing for years. We were told to value the stat line. We, You know, years ago, you open up a newspaper, you see what the standings are and the stat leaders, and then when the Internet came along, you go to whatever website you use or app. But those things don't actually always equal winning and losing because guess what? Joel Embiid led the league in scoring, won the league MVP, not in the finals. The year Giannis doesn't win MVP, he wins a championship. You know, it's it's not always a direct correlation, regular season and postseason. And when you have a guy like Jokic, where you give him other smart people around him, Murray knows exactly. It feels like Murray always knows what to do in every situation. Aaron Gordon is probably one of the best weak side defenders in the entire NBA. Michael Porter Jr. is still not even in his prime yet. And you have guys like Bruce Brown and Contavious Galwa-Pope who always seemingly make the right play in a situation. Well, I think if you watch the Iverson thing last night, it wasn't really an Iverson thing, although he was really the feature of it. Um, the Sixer uh, documentary on NBA TV, yeah. you saw where Theo Ratliff said like he kind of found his place and what he was. They didn't need me to score, and he knew where to be defensively all the time because he knew how Iverson defended, and he knew you know, where to be when Iverson kind of got beat and he took his chances. And those are all type of things. You feed off of your other players. You feed off the guys that you've been around. And I think the Sixers kind of lack that sometimes. Um, and maybe that's a little bit of, you know, a guy like Harden is just not all that interested in playing a lot of defense. And Bede's a very good defensive player. I'm really interested to see what Nurse gets out of him defensively. But when you ask the question, what do the Sixers lack that Denver has – um, or how do you build your team based on you know what how they do it with Jokic? Yeah, you really, 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 and they talked about this today with Nick Nurse. You gotta have Maxi turn into the Murray. No, Murray wasn't Murray. His first cut, he was very good, but he was like you know, not like wow, help me get to the NBA Finals. Good, he has turned into that guy. You know, Jokic and Murray. They both averaged 25 points and five assists. I mean, that's how impactful that those guys have been. Um, I take a look at this. By the way, Michael Porter Jr., seven straight games where uh, seven straight games scoring less than 20 points, and they're winning games still. Why? Because they can pick up the slack in other areas. Their bench comes in. Because Porter Jr., you know, you, you think about him, hey, you need that third guy. We talk about that third guy. If the Sixers don't get that third guy to step up, they're in trouble. D- Denver doesn't need Porter to be that impactful of the third scorer all the time. So I take a look at 
what that team has. It's a lot more athleticism than the Sixers do. But I don't think that they are head and shoulders better than Philadelphia is. I don't think so either. But I do think that there's something to be said with the fact that, you know, why why are people unhappy with Harden? Because Harden, for as you know, we we've been we were sold on this idea that Harden is this high basketball IQ guy, how smart he is. But yet, Jamal Murray is making better decisions in clutch postseason moments than Harden is. And for a lot of people, it's very frustrating that you have a guy who's supposed to be this experienced, this knowledgeable, and he's just dribble, 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 five, four, three. The clock's winding out. It's like, dude, do something. And then B's fighting for position. He's trying to get open. Other guys are getting open. And Harden's just like, I'm going to drive to the bucket and hope to get fouled. And it's like, well, don't you have the awareness to know? Like Jamal Murray will say in the game, hey, Jokic is getting double and triple team. It's on me to help him get out of those You're situations. You're talking about, though, Harden, a guy who was the guy, the only scorer in Houston. And that's, you know, the way that he played there. And for him, he didn't have playoff success, but he had individual success. And sure. that's the style of game that he played. I'm not trying to say that he's right or wrong. but saying that's the way he plays. The Sixers had to have known this, that that's the kind of player that they're getting. Well, then maybe Harden needs to grow up and own the fact that he doesn't know how to evolve as a human being. Like, if you're, if you're stuck in playing a certain way, and, like, you know, it, you know, there are times in our business, Mike, where, and I don't, I'm not going to get overly specific, but there are times that we, the years that you and I have worked together, right, where you have had to sit me down and say, hey, Josh, the way you did this, it's not good. And I'm going to explain to you why it's not good. And you need to hear this for better or for worse. Because if you want to get better at your job, you have to get better at these things. And I listened and I got, I worked on those things. It's like Harden doesn't want to listen to anyone telling him anything. Well, you're also, no offense, he's been the MVP of the league. There's a lot he's of guys who have been MVP of the league. Time scoring a champion. lot of guys have been scoring champions. I get that, but... To try to tell a guy who's an MVP and a scoring champion that you're not doing something the right way, they look at you and say, look at Ben Simmons. Hey, Ben, X, Y, and Z. And Ben's answer would be, I'm an MV- I'm a all-star. All-star. I'm a third-team All-NBA. But that's the difference between somebody who is content But there's your difference of why great. Denver's here and Philadelphia's not. James Harden is saying, I'm an MVP player. I'm the scoring champion. And you're saying, well, there are things that you can get better. And he's saying, I'm an MVP. Don't tell me how to get better. You have to, what did Iverson say in that documentary last night that apparently nobody else watched except for me? (laughs) In his Hall of Fame speech, he said, you have to want to be coached. And it wasn't until I finally let Larry Brown coach me that I became the MVP. And this isn't Larry Brown, X and O, every single play, holding up fingers. What did David Sampson say yesterday? You don't see coaches holding up fingers. Is proving, here's the problem with Jokic, okay? Yes, he's in the finals, and everybody is now saying, see, he's better than Embiid. I don't think that that's the case. Embiid is a better defensive player than Jokic by far. Right. It's not even close. So if you value that, you would rather Embiid because he's a rim protector. Jokic is not. I think we're about to find out, you know, see, the Heat are a tough team to 
defend, to, to find this out against because they shoot a lot of threes. They jack up a lot of threes. But they are an example of the modern NBA. They right, are, but my they point are symbolic is symbolic of that. Jokic is not a good defensive player and he's not a rim protector, but in this particular series that might not be exposed a lot. It might not, but because think, the, the Miami doesn't have a big man right, and they shoot a lot him. of threes, are they going to take the ball to the basket and make him protect the rim? Now, you do have Gordon, who's not a center, obviously, but he's a very athletic guy. He alters a lot of shots. He is an incredible weak side defender. If you're asking me, you're you're asking me, Mike, who would I rather have, and it sounds like as an offensive player. Jokic is a more well-rounded offensive player in terms of his IQ. He's a better passer. He's got better touch around the rim than Embiid does. Embiid is probably, you know, he does things that Jokic just flat out can't do. He is a much more dominant low post player. He has that elbow jumper that is just basically almost unstoppable. But Jokic has a better court vision. But I'd rather have Embiid on the floor for me on the defensive end of the floor. Sure. I think Jokic just has, like, put it this way: if you put Embiid in Denver, I would be pretty inclined to say that Denver would still be here because of the surrounding cast is is pretty suited to play around Embiid. And that's really the key to what I've been trying to get at the people, and that is the people around Embiid are the biggest reason for his success and failing. It's. I know it's not sexy. I know it's not popular to say. But at the end of the day, if you want to win a championship, it's the people around the superstar that matter. Sports Bash is live on 97.3 ESPN. I'm Mike Gill. Don't forget, coming up on the other side, Coach Jimmy Lynham is here. And we'll talk to him about his impressions of Nick Nurse and the impact he will have. Big news. Trio North Wildwood selected for... Uh, America's Best Restaurant. Have you seen this? They're filming the show there today, actually. They are filming the show right now. They are just about done filming the show, America's Best Restaurant. And you can eat there. Make a reservation at resi.com. And let me tell you, the summer is here. Thursday through Saturday, open from the start of June. From Wednesday, June 21st, they will expand their service to six days a week. From Wednesday through Monday. Trio North Wildwood. It's a short drive from Seven Mile. You can get there easily. Sea Isle, Stone Harbor, Avalon. North Wildwood is the spot. The menu is fantastic. My man, Chef Gus. Guess what? They got picked to be on America's Best Restaurants. That tells you enough. I've been there. You should try it out. Trio North Wildwood, 700 New Jersey Avenue, featured on America's Best Restaurants. They're actually filming that right now, so if you're driving in the Wildwood area, you'll probably see them. They're just about wrapping the filming up, and you can have... Now, reservations are strongly suggested, strongly suggested, on the Resi, R-E-S-Y platform. Check it out. Trio... Wildwood, North Wildwood, I should say, New Jersey Avenue, 700 New Jersey Avenue. Uh, Coach Jimmy Lynham joins me on the other side. Don't go away. This is the Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. Now, without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. 
Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN, South Jersey Sports Leader. 551, do you remember, we told you on this day, 2009, the Sports Bash was born on 97.3 ESPN. It was a previous incarnation as the Mike Gill Show on 1450 AM. Now, I did not come up with the name The Sports Bash. No, but I think you're happy that the show is not named after you anymore. Oh, I never said that. Although I never named it before. The names were all given to me. I didn't come up with any of these names. But I just know that you're not a very self-aggrandizing, you know, look at me kind of guy. Yeah, no, that's not wouldn't have been my choice either. But I did not come up with the name of the Sports Bash. No, you did not. But on this day, 2009, the Sports Bash was born. And here we are all these years later. Well, at least you're here. 14 years later. Yeah. And, you know, the show, um, we've had a bunch of different co-hosts and different people who have been a part of the show. I've only had two producers. Uh, Pete G. Yep. Pete G. or Dano, who was texting me earlier during my show today. I still travel with Pete. We meet up in... Clearwater every single year. How's Pete doing? He is doing well. He's still working for the NASCAR channel on Sirius XM. He left here to go to Sirius XM, and he has not left the NASCAR channel. He didn't know anything about NASCAR, and he took a job working NASCAR, but uh, he's doing great. I was hanging out with him and his wife. He's got a daughter now uh, who I think is like three or four years old. Wow. But I talk to Pete probably every single day still. So Pete G was my original producer, and we've had, you know, Todd was my co-host, uh, a gentleman by the name of Matt Siegel. Does anybody remember Matt Siegel had a short run as my co-host? I liked Matt a lot. Um, we had the Jeff Mosher, Ryan Rothstein, uh trio. We had that show for a bit. Um, Hunter Brody. And I did the show together for a while. So we've had a bunch of different lineups as uh, guys in and out have kind of come through. We've had so many different people, guests that have been a part of the show. We've had regular guests. You know, Casey Joyner has been on the show since the first year. I thought you were going to say since the dawn of time. No, but you know, uh, my man Johnny G is listening and he sent a text in. Do you know that Matt Siegel who was the, a short-time co-host. He came here from Nashville. Matt did. Okay. He is the person who introduced me to one Sal Palantonio. There you go. He got Sal Pal on the show because he had done a segment with Sal in Nashville. And when Matt came here, he said, you know, hey, I know Sal Pal. I'll reach out to him to see if he wants to do the show. And... That is uh, how we got Sal Palantonio on the show. By the way, one of the biggest Do You Remembers in history. Do you remember on this day in 1925? Of course you don't. You weren't bored. Lou Gehrig, pinch hit, flew out the left field. The next day, he would start over Wally Pipp, who had a headache. He played two straight games. He ended up playing 2,130 consecutive games. That streak 
for 60 seasons. By the way, also on this day, Reggie Miller scored 25 points in the fourth quarter. The infamous choke gesture to Spike Lee. As Pacers beat the Knicks, 93-86. Big one there. Uh, Also on this day, 2012. By the way, that Reggie Miller game was 1994. Do you feel old? I was in high school at the time when that happened. (laughs) Have a great night. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.